Yeah, that was the summertime, but you know what comes with the summertime. Beef. In popular culture, medieval feasts tend to feature plenty of meat, entire chickens or chunks of game stacked on large platters. But now researchers who've analysed more than 2,000 skeletons from the period say that even the wealthiest Anglo-Saxons may have eaten largely plant-based diets. Dr Sam Leggett, a bioarchaeologist from Cambridge University, told us about her research. What I did was get some remains from early medieval cemeteries and I analysed them for dietary signatures. So basically you get the collagen out of the bones, the squishy bit, and that tells you about what people have been eating. And then I looked at the rest of the literature that we have that other people have published for that, looked at the data and tried to have a look at how much meat people were eating. Um, And then I spoke to my colleague, Tom Lambert, who's the other co-author on the papers, um, and it didn't match with the historical narrative that we've got these lists about what people should have been eating. And so that's kind of what led us to kind of have a look at, okay, they're theoretically eating a lot of meat, but that is not what we're seeing from the actual people. So what's going on? So we found that even the elites were having that sort of more vegetable-based diet day to day, and that if people were eating huge amounts of meat, that was quite a rare and special occasion, which was very surprising. There was not quite as much hierarchy as what we originally would have expected. This is still a society that owned slaves, so it wasn't egalitarian by modern standards by any means, but certainly the nobles and the kings were having big feasts with the peasantry. I think really what it comes down to is uh, these animals are really sort of very important for everybody's day-to-day lives. Um, They can provide you with so much more than just food um, in a meat sense, so, you know, cattle getting used for dairy um, and to plough the fields and sheep for their wool as well as their milk. So to slaughter one of these animals uh, to eat day to day would have been depriving you of lots of other stuff. So they were very, um, they were worth quite a lot. So if you're going to do it, you really did it with purpose to then have, you know, a very special meal together. Bioarchaeologist Sam Leggett. You're dirt. We think you're dirt. Who is we? The West, all the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt, they think you're dumb, you're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on, don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You could own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. This is a humanitarian disaster that calls for a massive and urgent relief effort. The lives, health and well-being of thousands of people are still at risk. That's South Africa's President Cyril Ramphosa describing the impact of devastating floods in and around Durban earlier this month. Almost a year's worth of rain fell in just 48 hours. More than 400 people died. Dozens are still missing and around 40,000 people have been displaced. Authorities are blaming climate change. Pindiwe Mashulwane lives in Durban. Her home was flooded but not destroyed. Pindiwe, hello. Hello, hello, Mads. What's it been like in the, in yeah. the wake of the floods? Wow. It was stressful and a very, very sad moment when we woke up in the morning and find out that there's a lot of water around my house and also my neighbors. It was so, so, so stressful. And really, it was traumatizing a day by that day. It was very, very hard and sad to us. 
I was saying that there was 48 hours uh, that saw almost a year's worth of rain. What did that look like? What did what was it like when it was raining that hard? When it was raining, there was full of water in my house. The, the water in the house was up to my ankle, and we were trying to take that water out. And in the morning, when we woke up, we found out everybody was having the same situation. The water was running around our houses. The trees were not there, and also the other houses were flooded and were, were gone. There was rivers in, in the place that we know very well that there's no river, but we find out there's a big river now. It was so devastating. And so it was so, so sad. Had you ever seen anything like that before? No, no, no. It was the first time because we had floods in 1987, but when they were not the same as this one. This one was very hard and it rained only uh, 24 hours, but it was so, so bad. And so now that the waters have been receding, what sort of damage is, is left behind? What does it look like in your in your community now? It's very hard because even now we don't have water. We are fetching water from the streams and from the, the pipes that are broken. And we're not sure whether this water is clean enough, but we don't have any option because it's the only water that we have. So we are fetching that water and we are talking to each other to at least try and purify that water. And also we don't have electricity is coming and it's going, it's, it's there and sometimes it's not there. And it is very, very hard for us really because we can't, most of us can't afford to buy water from the shops for drinking every day. We can't manage to buy water. So we are fetching that water and it's very, very hard, really, really. It's hard. You said you weren't sure whether the water hard. that you were fetching from the stream is clean. Are you, are you, what are you worried about when it comes to that? We are, we are worried about the diseases like cholera. We thank God as it is now, there is no one who is sick at this moment, but we're afraid, really. We always talk to each other that we must, we need to be very, very careful. We need to boil it. If you don't, at least put a um, regular chicken, a teaspoon of regular chicken, it's, that's what we are doing as it is now. And yeah. And also we are having the problem of network because the network comes and go and we can't even phone our relatives to find out how are they because, because of network. It's very, very hard, really. And also we, some of us don't have food because food was flooded and also our furniture is damaged as I speak. Are there roads that have been washed out? I mean, is it easy to get around in the community? Oh, yes, yes. The first day, the, the morning after these floods, we, there was no transport because the roads were broken, broken. We can't even move. But now the main road is fixed now. We can now go to the main road. But we don't use the normal routes that we use when we are coming from home. It's very hard because you have to take another route and then go straight to the bus stop and then you catch the bus or the, the combi to the work. Fortunately, the main road is fixed now. We can go to town or to work now. But on the 12th, it was difficult because we won't be able to go anywhere. I'd read that, that some schools were damaged in the flooding as well. What have you seen oh, there? Yes. Oh, yes. That's, there's one school in my era that is fully damaged. So as it is now, the children were taking to other schools. It was very hard because when you are going to that school, it's down the valley. You cross uh, one river three times when you are going there and the bridges are fully damaged and it's full of water. So the school as well is, uh, is damaged. And what about in your house right now? You mentioned that the water was up to your ankles. Um, what does it look like now? It's wet. 
it's having the, the mold, everything he ate, it's wet and it's it's cold as I speak because it's wet. The, the walls are wet and the floors, everything. We are trying to dry up now. We are trying the clothes, the, the, the clothes, the wardrobe is wet. Everything is wet, but we are trying to, to dry up our clothes. It's very heavy. Yeah. The government declared an, a state of national disaster, and so they are putting in uh, resources to help. What do you need from the government right now? Uh, f- from the government, if maybe they can help us with the, the for those people who have no houses, at least support them by building the houses. But in other areas, it's very difficult because a uh, the site is damaged. They can't even build another house in the same site because uh, the area in other area the house has just moved away by the flats and cross the road down to the bottom. The house, we find out the house is there at the bottom and the site is fully, fully damaged. That's our main problem now. We don't have sites. If maybe the government can provide us with the land, I don't know where to build it there because other people can't be able to renew, to build new houses in their sites. That's the main problem that we have. The house is just washed away. Washed away. Other houses are washed away. Wow. They, there's nothing, 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 nothing in other in in other homes. It's very, very. At least for us, yes, I do have a shelter in on my head. At least. How are you and 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 your neighbors holding up in the midst of all of this? Oh yeah, we are giving support to each other. At least uh, we are supporting each other by renovating the damage. We are helping each other to fix the damages, and also we pray together for this situation. It's very, very, uh, at least because we, we are neighbors and we, we, we meet together and pray and we, ha- we are helping each other by renovating the windows, the doors, and also helping each other to to channel water because the water is still there in some other houses. We are still trying to help them by building the path to for that water to go through. And there are big holes, like in my house, there's a big hole behind my house. And I don't know how am I going to fix that big hole. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I really wish you the best of luck. I'm glad to talk to you. I'm glad you still have a roof over your head as well. But take care of yourself, and thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Pindewe Mashalwani lives in a flood-affected area of Durban, South Africa. Much of the damage and death toll is concentrated in Durban's townships and in the rural communities, and experts say that as a result of societal inequality in South Africa, particularly when it comes to housing. Tafadzwa Mabaudli is a professor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, specializes in climate change adaptation, and is in Durban this morning. Professor, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mitch. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Pindiwe said that her neighborhood was badly hit by flooding, but my understanding, as I was saying, is that the townships around Durban are even worse. What sort of damage are you seeing there? Uh, there's been extensive damage. Um, we've had floods in, in Durban before, but this is the worst so far because of the scale of the damage, houses completely lost, uh, massive flooding, uh, damage to infrastructure, uh, and as you said, in particular, in the you know informal settlements and, and townships, uh, there's been quite significant destruction. All properties destroyed, massive landslides, lives lost. It's really terrible. How would you describe the sort of housing that was, as you say, in those informal settlements before the flood struck? How, how, where were people living? You know, within informal areas, naturally, it's not a planned settlement. 
uh, and the structures are poorly constructed. They're often made out of, you know, fabricated steel or wood structures. They often do not have a proper foundation or proper reinforcement. So they're not well-designed structures. Uh, they're not resilient structures. So when a flood happens, those people, one, they're vulnerable by virtue of being located within areas that are at risk to flooding because most of them are in you know, the riparian zones. They settle close to water sources like rivers and stuff like that. Mm. Or they're living on, on steep slopes, which themselves are at risk of muds of landslides. So when you, know, you have floods like what we witnessed recently in Durban, the people in the low-lying areas are going to experience massive flooding. They are going to have their uh, houses washed away. They're going to work up with water in their houses. You know, we, we saw landslides happening. We saw people waking up and not seeing their neighbors' houses anymore. And have you seen that flooding get worse because of climate change? There are two things. Scientifically, we cannot attribute the most recent floods to, to climate change. We attribute them to extreme weather events. Uh, but what we do know is that there has been an increase in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events. And that narrative fits within the context of climate change. The president has acknowledged that there is a failed housing policy in South Africa. What would push people to live in those sorts of areas, as you say, in, in floodplains or on the steep hills that could be uh, the subject to landslides in the face of those sorts of flood risks? What would push people to live in that area? There's what we call the poverty, uh, unemployment, inequality nexus, which creates a very vicious cycle affecting the majority of poor South Africans. The legacy of apartheid is also very real. You've got very underdeveloped rural areas. You've got massive unemployment. Like now you've got 60% youths uh, being unemployed, a lot of them in the rural areas. So they're moving into the urban areas, the cities, in search of opportunities. So one, they are naturally not going to be able to afford decent accommodation within the city space. Two, the cities themselves are not growing and developing new affordable housing at the pace, at the rate at which people are moving into these areas. So then you, you find informal areas mushrooming, and they usually mushroom within areas that are close to industrial areas or sources of employment. Now, those places, incidentally, are not ideal for, for human settlements. They mostly okay within the, the flood risk areas, and the steep slopes that are prone to landslides. So even in the past, this government has tried to build houses and move people out of these places into the new houses. You, you find instances where as others are moving out, others are moving into mm. that space. But then there's the hope that if I'm there, I could then you know, be the next to get a house. Or someone is allocated a house, but because they are poor, you know, it, it makes sense for them to rent out the house that's, that's been allocated and come back to to live in that same place because now at least they can earn, you know, a, an income from the house whilst they're living in this place. So those are key issues that need to be addressed. 
How do you go about doing that if, I mean, you mentioned the inequality, something like 10% of the population in South Africa owns 80% of the wealth and the land. How do you create the space to build more suitable housing, more resilient housing? Look, it's, it's a complex situation. Uh, it, it calls for a system-driven approach that looks at the multiple factors. You, you need to understand the drivers poverty, unemployment, and inequality. You've got rural areas uh, where there's massive areas of land uh, that are available, but there's a disincentive for people settling in those areas because there is a lack of economic activity. So you need to stem the movement, the rural urban migration, by focusing on rural economic development, uh, creating meaningful economic activity that generates significant or massive employment within those areas so that people are not attracted to move out and move to the cities. Because naturally, cities' infrastructure will get overwhelmed. Within the cities, we need to have climate-sensitive uh, spatial design. and We need to think a little bit out of the box in terms of how do we build houses how do we you know, integrate the fact that we've got more people living in cities, but we still want to maintain green spaces? So what sort of structures do we need to put in place that meet both ends, the accommodation, that address the, you know, the need for green spaces, the need for work and leisure, food production, urban food production is now a big thing because more and more urban areas now have to produce some of their food you need to integrate proper waste management and sanitation because the more people that you have in an area, it creates a waste uh, crisis as well. How do you remove waste? Where do you take the waste to? How is it recycled? What is the potential for recycling, reuse? You know, the circular economy approach, you have to think in a circular way. Government also has to think creatively in terms of how does it unlock uh, existing state-owned land and use it for, you know, uh, providing accommodation. And also, how do we use land reform uh, to perhaps be part of the solution to addressing the, the lack of accommodation? Because part of it is because government has limited land uh, that is state-held. The majority of it is in, in private lands. Mm. So how do you move that land uh, you know, private property uh, in a legal framework that does not then create another crisis uh, of, you know, failure to respect private property rights. But whilst at the same time, you are allowing for the state to access land that can be used for, for the purpose of, you know, building human settlements and also ensuring that where that land is located, it's ideal, and other supporting services that need to go, you know, in place, electricity, water, sanitation, uh, the food production, industry, distance from where the employment is, all of those things they, they need. So, so it's more an integrated type of you know, solution that is required. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matt. Bye-bye. Tafadzwa Mabaudi is a professor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. He specializes in climate change adaptation. We reached him 
in Durban, South Africa. I've never been a fan of the NCAA. Yeah, me neither. You know, my, my senior year in high school, I literally couldn't find a reason to go to college. So I didn't care where I was going to get drafted. I knew I wasn't going to nobody college, waking up at 5 in the morning yeah. and trying to figure out how I'm going to eat at lunchtime. Right. You know what I'm saying? I just, that never was a, that never was appealing to me. After 12 years at the helm of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, the organization's president, has announced he plans to step down by June 30th of 2023. This comes just one year after he signed an extension to lead the NCAA through 2025. During Emmert's time in leadership, the NCAA's revenue exceeded $1 billion a year through television contracts. But his tenure has also been marked by several controversies and major changes in the ways student-athletes are treated. Nicole Auerbach is a senior writer with The Athletic, and she joins us now to talk about this. Hey, Nicole. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Nicole, I'm curious, why has the NCAA reached this agreement on his resignation now? I mean, last year around this time, the inequity between the men's and women's basketball tournaments came to light. Was that the final straw or was it something else? Well, I think that a lot of this has just been building. And, you know, one administrator put it this way, he, he lost the locker room. And there have been a lot of athletic directors and commissioners who have been very disappointed with his lack of leadership and also just reactive ways to changing issues. I mean, name, image, and likeness, the NCAA was so far behind on and not proactive at all. And the courts ended up deciding um, you know, basically what the framework can be for athlete compensation related to academic benefits, which paved the way for a largely unregulated space in, in name, image, and likeness right now. And I, I think there's a number of issues. The women's basketball tournament is absolutely one, but the, the phrase losing a locker room, I think, is a really good way to think about this because when people have lost faith in you as a leader, it becomes really hard to lead. And I think there's so many changes going on with NCAA governance and what the future of college sports will be. I think there were a lot of people who felt like this was a natural breaking point and a good time to have somebody else who can, who can actually lead this organization. You mentioned the name, image, and likeness controversy. Uh, and, you know, his critics, as you say, he stood in the way of progress on this front. You know, as you've covered the NCAA, how do you see it? I mean, was he in any way a catalyst for change? I mean, we've, you just mentioned how he was a big barrier to it. Well, there were different times, I think, where, you know, he has tried to lead an organization to certain points. And it's a membership organization, so you need buy-in. So whether or not that was related to cost of attendance stipends that help bring athlete scholarships basically up to the full cost of attendance at other scholarships bring bring regular students on campus. I mean, he has pushed for different things over the years, but I think, you know, we, we saw overreach in terms of sanctions in response to Penn State. We have seen, you know, kind of him him put his foot in his mouth on a number of different issues. He, he's talked a lot about existential crises facing college sports, and he's used that term so many different times, I think it's lost a little bit of its bite. But I think the legal strategy in, in relation to the Alston case, which was ended up going all the way up to the Supreme Court, and again, just the lack of leadership and getting people behind and working together on various issues to get out in front on the name, image, and likeness issue, those are things that people have constantly talked about, and it's just gotten worse and worse, again, as we've seen how unregulated it is. What do you think the NCAA will be looking for in its next president? 
Well, I think it's going to be either, you know, we're, we're going to have to figure out what the organization looks like. Is it just about running championships and, and certifying eligibility that, that would lead to a certain candidate? Or is it about getting people to work together, working with the Power Five commissioners? Um, you know, there were a couple names that, that continued to come up, and it's, it's a lot of university presidents who really understand athletics, like a Jim Clements at Clemson, I think, is a really strong candidate for that reason. But you have to be able to marry the academic mission with athletic experience, but also lived athletic experience. That's Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Welcome back. New at 11, unfriendly fans at a high school lacrosse playoff game. A team says spectators in Cherokee County were yelling racial slurs at them. The predominantly black team from Brookwood High School says it was way beyond heckling. They're adamant they heard the N-word. CBS 46's Patrick Quinn joins us live from Cherokee High School. And Patrick, what is the school now doing about this? Well, the, the principal said in a statement that they've looked into these allegations, but in fact, they couldn't find any proof that these racial slurs were used. Now, I was able to speak with four girls on this lacrosse team, and they told me that now the school, uh, basically calling them liars, they say it just puts salt in the wound. The heckling became more aggressive, more direct, more racially motivated. Asia Thomas, who plays goalie for Brookwood High School, said 10 minutes into the second half, she heard the first N-word. Moments later, she heard it again, coming from a group of seven or eight boys in the stands. And that's when I notified the refs. Then in that moment, it like, it elevated to something way deeper than just lacrosse. In this state playoff lacrosse game at Cherokee High School, the girls said after a warning, one ref asked the boys to leave. According to the Georgia High School Association, profanity, degrading remarks, and intimidating actions directed at officials, competitors, or other spectators will not be tolerated and are grounds for removal from the event site. They started to exit the stadium. But then the girls said the boys never left. And in a statement, Cherokee High School's principal said the administration at CHS spent several hours interviewing coaches, players, other spectators, and students who were present at the game, and none heard any racial slurs. In their statement, in essence, called us liars. As a black athlete that played in that game, to me, that just feels like they won in that situation. The girls said they want an apology and to see accountability from Cherokee High School and the state. Lacrosse is a predominantly white sport and as black athletes, they said they want to feel empowered to speak out and stand out. And the fact that I can't do something simple as play a high school game without those constant reminders that I am different. Uh, following me just felt really, really, just, I felt really very distraught. And I did reach out to the school district. They told me the principal's statement will speak for them. I also reached out to the Georgia High School Association. They did not get back to me in time for this report. Now, worth noting, the girls tell me since last night they have felt a groundswell of support from across the country, even into Canada, again, since last night.
We're live tonight from Cherokee County. Patrick Quinn, CBS 46 News. Patrick, thank you for that report. I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the backseat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and, and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. And thanks for choosing KLBK News. I'm Matt Stell. I'm Terry Berman. We've had several parents and concerned citizens contact us here at KLBK about racist bullying being reported over at Laura Bush Middle School. The stories are just so hard to even listen to, but now we're hearing straight from the school's principal about these allegations. KLBK's Landry Senna has been on this story for us since last Friday. Now, Landry, it was something that was on social media that made it the last straw for these parents, right? Matt and Terry, that's right. It started from an Instagram page that was posting black students from Laura Bush Middle School without their consent and calling them monkeys. It turns out parents say that wasn't the start of any of this awful behavior, but instead a breaking point for some who say this racist bullying has been an issue since the first weeks of school. Everybody is experiencing racism. These Lubbock Cooper parents say their kids have been putting up with this behavior all year at Laura Bush Middle School. Teased for their skin color, getting called multiple racial slurs, but that's not all. They even went to the extent of getting uh, uh, a sound on their phone of a whip mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and walk past the kids and play it in their ear. But their breaking point was when an Instagram page called LBMS Monkeys was created. Thankfully, that page was reported and taken down last week. We talked with Laura Bush's principal Wednesday about the allegations. That's appalling and disgusting. That is not a reflection of my beliefs, Laura Bush Middle School's beliefs, or Lubbock Cooper ISD's, ISD's belief. When any situation is brought to our attention, you know, we immediately go into investigation, uh, find out the facts, apply the appropriate discipline when necessary. Hendricks says that once the district finds the students who made the page, they'll get the maximum punishment available. We are known uh, for being a pirate family and taking care of one another. And I truly uh, take that to heart each and every day. I love all of these kids. But these parents say enough isn't being done. There's no communication. And when I started to reach out to these other parents, all of our stories were the same. We want them to be able to go to school and not have to worry about being bullied, name calling, whipping sounds in their ear. We want them to be able to focus on their next test or their next assignment. And based upon the conversations they've had with their children, they believe this is the unfortunate culture that's floating around the entire district. And we're not saying everybody is racist, but we, what we are saying is that racism is still alive. Are we a perfect school, a perfect district? No. Nobody is. We, we have to always evolve and, and address needs as they come. So looking forward. And we just want the same respect that y'all give the other students. We want that, that respect for our kids. But we're going to continue to grow in this area. Uh, we're going to continue to look at, at some trainings and maybe some programs that are available. This is not something that we support or stand behind. 
And in a statement regarding that situation at Laura Bush Middle School, the 100 black men of West Texas have said, quote, the benign failure of the school administration and trustees to confront these issues and take a strong stand against bigotry and racial bullying has gone on for too long. While it is understood that the discipline of a student is a private matter, the climate and policies of a school district are public matters and should be well pu publicized and open for review. It is the 100's position that it is vitally imperative that a transparent, corrective action plan be developed and implemented with the committed intent and goal of creating a swift, transformative cultural change within LCISD. Matt. See, I love my hometown. I'm from Oakland, California. And I love Oakland. And everything I learned from Oakland, I learned how to be street smart. I learned who to hang around and who not to hang around. You know, just to go to school and come home every day was like a mission, you know what I'm saying? So right now, I could go anywhere in the world, and I'm protected by God, but you know, I could go to your hood and hang out. I could hang out in Watts, Crenshaw, New York, Harlem, anywhere in Cleveland, New Orleans, any project in the world. I know when you're trying to do something to me, I'll be out on your ass quick. That's from Oakland. Don't get it wrong. I love Oakland, California. Home of the Oakland Raiders. I love Oakland. I love the air in Oakland. I love the people in Oakland. I love the schools in Oakland. I love the, the musicians in Oakland. I love the preachers in Oakland. I love the teachers in Oakland. I love everybody in Oakland. But see, I just had to leave. But I go back, I go back and talk to the kids. They need me. They need to see me. Large urban school districts are cutting costs and closing schools because of declining enrollment. But whose schools are closed raises questions about racial equity. Parents in Oakland, California, say their district is targeting schools that serve black children with disabilities. KQD's Julia McAvoy has this story. Nine-year-old Delane Whaley was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and seizures at four weeks. Hospital staff told her mom she wouldn't walk or talk. That basically she would be wheelchair-bound, but I told them that I serve a God who is going to do bigger and better things for her. By 16 months, Delane was crawling. At age four, she walked into preschool. And her teacher cried. She knew how much I wanted Delane to walk. What's the matter? I'm not talking about you in a bad way, it's a good way. Murphy has always fought for Delane, and she found a small public school a few miles from home that educates her with the conviction that she can learn. Good morning, Lainey. Carl B. Monk Elementary is one of two small majority black primary schools high in the exclusive Oakland Hills. This is an area of affluent families where discriminatory housing policies denied black families from buying homes and attending schools for decades. When Murphy learned the district was closing her school, she was stunned. I felt disrespected. Monk Elementary serves more than three times as many students with disabilities as other small, predominantly white schools in the Oakland Hills. Those other schools are not being closed by the district. 
I mean, in a dream world scenario, we would have adequate base funding and adequate special education funding at both the federal and state level. Jennifer Blake heads special education for the district. She agrees Monk is a model, but she says the district operates too many under-enrolled small schools, which is costly. I know there was no intention to be able to target students with disabilities exclusively. It feels like you want to erase these kids. For nearly 20 years, Principal Denise Burroughs has heard from white families who won't send their children here. Unfortunately, over the years, I've actually had people say things like, well, I like the school, but um, I just felt like my child would be in a minority here because there were so many children of African descent and color here. Parents of children with disabilities have sent letters to state and county officials accusing the district of negligent treatment of black children with disabilities. The ACLU has asked California's attorney general to investigate whether the district took racial equity into account in its closure plans. The school district, by its own admission, has a history of chronically underfunding historically black schools. ACLU staff attorney Linnea Nelson says that underfunding has led to underenrollment at these schools. The very condition that is now citing to justify disrupting tight-knit school communities and displacing literally hundreds of Black students. It's rare to find a school where neurotypical children accept kids with disabilities like Delane. Her mom, Jolanda Murphy, says it creates a profound experience for everyone. I'm just not going to send my kids to some school just because that's the neighborhood. I'm going to make sure it's right. And I feel that a lot of the special need parents make sure that it's right. Murphy says she wants to know how the district could do something so wrong. For NPR News, I'm Julia McAvoy in Oakland. Hi. Hi. The mail came. They're here. Both of them. Holy shit. You open yours first. No, you. I'll open yours, you open mine. Okay. No, no, I'll open mine, you open yours. Okay, you open yours first. We'll open them together. Okay. On three. All right. One. Two. Wait a minute. Gordon, before we do this, I just want to say you're my best buddy, and I love you. And if you get accepted and I don't, I help you rot in hell. I feel the same way. Thanks. Son of a bitch. You got in, didn't you? Well, so did I. University, Harvard, is beginning to come to terms with its own history and role in slavery. The school is out with a new report detailing its extensive entanglement and legacy. Jeffrey Brown has the details as part of our ongoing reporting, Race Matters. The ties to slavery were deep, the signs in some cases hiding in plain sight. Among the findings in the 134-page report conducted by Harvard faculty, 
Harvard presidents, faculty, and staff enslaved more than 70 people in the 17th and 18th centuries, some of whom labored on campus. Harvard continued to benefit from donations from plantation owners and other trade involving slave labor. It also details how Harvard's longest serving president, Charles William Eliot, and other prominent faculty members strongly promoted eugenics, a racist idea that selective breeding is needed to purify the human race. In response to these and many other findings, the university has now pledged $100 million in part to create an endowed Legacy of Slavery Fund. For more, I'm joined by Tomiko Brown-Nagan. She's dean of the Harvard Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and she chaired the committee report. Thank you for joining us. There are many specifics here in this report, but what's the key for you? Is it how integral slavery was in the life and history of Harvard? I would say so. We documented both direct ownership or enslavement of human beings. We documented financial ties to the slave trade and to slave economies. And finally, uh, the intellectual production of ideologies that uh, supported slavery, segregation, and white supremacy. And so I would say uh, the, the breadth and depth of the findings uh, are significant, and in particular, the direct ownership of more than 70 human beings was more than I would have anticipated. Is there any one specific example that really surprised or even shocked you? Well, I wouldn't say shocked or surprised uh, me, Jeffrey. I, I would say that the reality of enslaved people being on campus, feeding our students, uh, serving Harvard presidents uh, is, is quite uh, remarkable. What was an important theme for you that came from this report? Sure. Well, I'm an historian, a legal historian of the civil rights movement, and it was important to me and the committee to lift up the history of resistance to inequality that uh, is personified by graduates of Harvard, such as W.B. Du Bois, who founded, uh, helped to found the Niagara Movement and the NAACP, and of course was a towering intellectual figure. Uh, and another I might cite is Charles Hamilton Houston, who was known as the man who killed Jim Crow because of his civil rights lawyering that laid the groundwork for Brown versus Board of Education. Those figures are vitally important to uh, understand as representatives of Harvard as well. This new fund of $100 million, it's a lot of money, but what exactly is it for? What do you see it doing? Sure, it is a significant financial commitment, and we're pleased uh, that the university has established this fund that is meant to address the harms of slavery in locally, uh, nationally, and in the Caribbean uh, through leveraging its expertise in education. Of course, access to educational opportunities is a known driver of social mobility, which explains our leading there and of course is consistent with our mission. In addition, we will seek to establish a public memorial to allow people on and off campus, visitors to campus to engage with this history. Uh, we have committed to supporting new and sustained partnerships with historically black colleges and tribal colleges. 
And also we recommended as a committee and the university will hold itself accountable uh, by establishing uh, reporting procedures and an implementation committee that is led by one of the world's authorities uh, on human rights and, and seeking justice, Martha Menno. It is notably not going toward individual reparations, though that continues to be such a hot topic. Why not? Well, I think it's important to focus on the remedies that the committee did endorse. Uh, there are a lot of ways to characterize uh, these types of remedies. And I think where we have landed uh, are on very meaningful ways of seeking to address the harms of slavery with uh, financial support established in perpetuity. And finally, briefly, I mean, where do you see now Harvard and, and American universities more generally in addressing and redressing this past? A number of universities have documented their ties to slavery and established scholarships, memorials, and uh, in many other ways have begun to address those ties to slavery. There are thousands of American universities, North and South, and so there certainly is an opportunity for other universities to engage their entanglements with slavery as well, uh, and also uh, the lingering effects of slavery into the 20th century. All right, Tomiko Brown-Nagan, thank you very much. Atlanta is taking steps to memorialize the victims of convict leasing. That's forced penal labor, often under, under brutal conditions akin to slavery. As Molly Samuel of member station WABEE reports, the city is buying a property where thousands worked and many died. Local activists have been fighting for years to protect the former site of the Chattahoochee Brick Company instead of allowing industrial development on it. Right now, there's not much there. A few scattered piles of bricks, dense woods, a cracked driveway. This place is probably one of the most horrific post-slavery sites in America. Donna Stevens has led the effort to protect the site and to teach people what happened here. The factory churned out bricks that built modern Atlanta around the turn of the 20th century. They're literally the foundation of homes, streets, and sidewalks here. The people who made those bricks, mostly black men, had been arrested and forced to work. Living in filth, eating rotting food, being beaten, people died here. It's been very personal for me. Stevens lives in a nearby neighborhood named after the owner of the Chattahoochee Brick Company. James English was one of the wealthiest men in Atlanta, a former Confederate captain and mayor of the city. Stevens says when she learned who he was and what he was involved in, she was floored. Religious leaders recently honored the people who had suffered at the factory with a memorial at the property. Imam Clement Al-Amin is retired from the Atlanta Masjid of Al-Islam. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can. And ignorance cannot drive out ignorance, only knowledge and understanding can. We At the event, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens said the bricks in his home may have come from the factory. He says now that the city is buying the land, there will be a memorial here and a park. It is time that this space with such an ugly past be turned into something beautiful. Journalist Douglas Blackman wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called Slavery by Another Name about convict leasing. He describes Chattahoochee Brick as nightmarish, and he says it wasn't alone. 
at any given time, there would have been tens of thousands, if not significantly more than that, of African-American men primarily forced into these circumstances all across the South. He says the system was part of the backlash to African-Americans gaining freedom after the Civil War, trying to vote and to live as full-fledged citizens. And he says he still sees tentacles of it today in mass incarceration. In terms of America's acceptance of the idea that it's okay for a huge population of people to be oppressed in these kinds of ways, that's absolutely a legacy of what happened in these years. The National Center for Civil and Human Rights, a history museum here, is bringing people together now to talk about what shape a memorial could take. Jill Savitt is the CEO of the center. She says it's important to have a dedicated space to honor victims of convict leasing. No community is going to move forward on racial justice, on economic justice, on a range of issues, unless we can be really clear-eyed about where we've been. Local activist Donna Stevens says she feels like this history has been overlooked, with schools essentially skipping from the Civil War to something Atlanta is more proud of, as the birthplace of Martin Luther King Jr. and home of other leaders of the civil rights movement. The history books stop with slavery and pick up with Dr. King. It's ridiculous. Now, Atlanta is beginning the work to fill in that gap. For NPR News, I'm Molly Samuel in Atlanta. At a time when tennis prodigies seem to be servicing every week, the latest hot prospect is Californian Venus Williams. There she go. <laughs> Last weekend, Williams captured her 17th singles title in less than a year by winning the age 12 and under Southern California Junior Sectional Championship. Listen to this, investigations into an apparent incident of police brutality in Los Angeles. CNN's Robert Vito has the story, but first, this word of caution. Some of you may be disturbed by the violent nature of the pictures contained. Her concentration was excellent. Boy, did she wax me. That's from Dorothy Cheney, y'all. Venus, you're famous. It's what appears to be a group of Los Angeles police officers beating a suspect with nightsticks and kicking him as other officers look on. George Holliday, who works for a drain cleaning company, taped the incident. Sunday. Okay. At least they got them on tape this time. He was one of that suspicion of Hello, Central Security Service. The suspect identified as 25-year-old Rodney Glenn King. Daddy, thanks for you. Guys, an agent wants to talk to you about representation. Thirty years ago today, four police officers were acquitted in the beating of Rodney King. It sparked five days of riots across Los Angeles, but there was another case not as widely known that helped set off the unrest. The same month that King was beaten, 15-year-old Latasha Harlins was shot and killed by a store clerk in south-central Los Angeles. Here's her grandmother, Ruth, who the kids call Medea, remembering the day she sent Latasha to the store. I had to say, get some orange juice. But when she got there, the lady said she had seen her put something in her backpack, and she had the money in her hand to pay the lady. But when she turned around and to leave, the lady shot her in the head, and she died. Latasha's brother, Vester, and her sister, Christina, were 10 and 8 when she died. They came to StoryCorps to remember her. Latasha was so popular, I felt as though she was a celebrity <laughs> because everyone knew her. One of the favorite memories we had was uh, when we used to be in the living room dancing and lip-syncing over music like a talent show. And we would have, like, spelling bees. We would sit down, and our grandmother, Medea, would give us spelling words, and we knew Latasha would get them all right. She was just that smart. Yeah, she was a caretaker. She cooked. 
She made sure we did our chores, did our homework. She made sure other people had before she had. I remember we were at the park and that's where the ice cream truck used to come. And a little girl didn't have enough money. And I remember Latasha buying that little girl an ice cream. Yeah. Walk me through the day Latasha died. That morning, Medea, she asked me to go to the store and I had a basketball game. So after that, I'm at the free throw line and our cousin T ran into the gym screaming, Tasha died, Tasha died. I ran out the back of the gym, ran, ran home. She was killed. The hardest part about losing Latasha was not having that older protective sister that I had. She was just always a motivating factor in my life. I just knew that I was blessed to have an older sibling that looked after me, that loved me. And I want people to know that Latasha was an honor roll student. She wanted to be a lawyer. She wanted to buy our grandmother a big old house. She had dreams in life. That's Christina Rogers and Vester Akoff remembering their sister, Latasha Harlins. Latasha's killer was convicted of manslaughter, but served no jail time. This conversation will be archived at the Library of Congress. Peace, quiet, and good order will be maintained in our city to the best of our ability. Riots, melees, and disturbances of the peace are against the interest of all our people and therefore cannot be permitted. The jury found that they were all not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, We've been not told guilty, that all along guilty, 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 guilty. There's a series of fires, a lot of looting is going on. 30 years ago today, parts of Los Angeles erupted in unrest after a jury acquitted four white Los Angeles police officers over the videotape beating of Rodney King, a black motorist. On this anniversary, Stephanie Sy revisits the fallout from the Rodney King beating and examines what has and has not changed. For many longtime Angelinas, the sights and smells of April 29, 1992 are still easily conjured. Smoke spread across L.A. as buildings were set on fire. Images of looting filled television screens. And less visible, the hurt expressed through peaceful protest. You hear the verdicts and you hear the one not guilty after another. I was angry. There's no other way for me to say it. I was just furious at, at the justice system. When people had expected some type of justice when it didn't happen, it was like another blow. It was like, you know, black lives don't really matter. I picked up the phone and I told my staff, go get your kids, go home, don't leave your houses. The city is going to blow. South Los Angeles, where much of the unrest unfolded, had been home to the city's largest black population for decades. Rhonda Mitchell's family, like many, had settled in L.A.'s Crenshaw district after leaving the South during the Great Migration. It was just the place to be. Uh, Crenshaw was alive. It crackled. But in many parts of L.A., tensions between communities of color and the LAPD had been simmering since the last bout of unrest in 1965. Mitchell's father, who lived through the Watts uprising, worried history was repeating itself after the Rodney King verdict came down. During the riots, I called him and I asked him how he was doing. And he, he was weary. He was sad about what was going on in the neighborhood. There was a lot of pressure and a lot of kindling, and 
It just took one spark. Connie Rice was an attorney for the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund at the time. African Americans were furious at LAPD for the humiliation, for the gratuitously uh, cruel policing, for the constant harassment. For nearly a week after the acquittals, long frustrated Angelinos took to the streets. Nearly 10,000 military troops were deployed to restore order. By the end, more than 50 people were dead. Police made over 10,000 arrests, and people had burned and vandalized $1 billion worth of property. I mean, it's like Martin Luther King said a long time ago, you know, um, these types of events are the, are the voice of the voiceless. Darnell Hunt is the Dean of Social Sciences at UCLA. In 1992, he was a graduate student and a budding social scientist observing and documenting the events. I had my camcorder and I was walking around town trying to get a sense of what was happening and how it compared to what I was seeing on television news. And I ran into this old man who just gestured me over and he pointed to a store over here and he said, see that? Um, that's my record store. And, you know, I would sacrifice that in order to um, make sure that, you know, our voices are heard. But some people would hear that and they would say, but these were these were their businesses, this yeah, was their yeah. community. Well, obviously for him, he would lived his whole life as a black man, he'd experienced what injustice can be, and he was willing to make that sacrifice. Media coverage at the time focused on the looting, the burning and the violence without much context for the socioeconomic disparities and police treatment of people of color in Los Angeles that had been fomenting resentment since the 1960s. On that front, progress has been mixed. Most news reporters didn't capture the nuance, says Hunt, who's written books about media and race. Overlooking the underlying causes, the structural causes that, you know, like inequality, racism, uh, racial profiling, economic um, um, insecurity, lack of employment, disinvestment in inner cities, all the things that created stress that led to the explosion that was triggered by the Rodney King beating verdicts. Rhonda Mitchell was a 911 operator for the LAPD at the time and witnessed the chaos erupting through the emergency phone lines. We were not answering calls unless it was really about life and death. She had taken the job for the pay and security, but in the aftermath of the verdict, her loyalties were divided. It was a struggle to work for the police department and hear what went on and know when hear the derogatory remarks uh, about people of color. You would hear racist comments? Yeah. And, and that's where it gets a little muddled for me, because we want the police in our community. We want our community safe. We don't want drug dealers all over the place. But the police didn't know how to, how to interact with us. The trust had already been lost there between us and the police. Mm -hmm. The problems at the LAPD were partly addressed with diversity recruitment. The force is now majority people of color. But police killings of black and brown Angelinos are still often in the headlines, and accountability is rare. Thirty years later, Connie Rice is still trying to help reform the police. She partnered with the LAPD to help create the Community Safety Partnership with a holistic approach to working in neighborhoods where mistrust still runs deep. The transition has to be from search and destroy, mass incarceration, shock and awe policing, to wrap around safety, heal and build, guardian policing. Gladiator to guardian. That's the culture change. But you can't have that change without all of the other sectors changing too. 
civil rights lawyers, the residents, government agencies. We ask cops to do too much. Bryce says she has found like-minded police chiefs with the same goals, but that the message hasn't trickled down to the rank and file. If you stick people in a hellhole and you send cops in to make sure that what's in that ghetto stays there, you're going to get what we get, which is riots, rebellions, uprisings that are triggered by a bad shooting, a bad stop. Um, we're, we're one more video away from that kind of explosion again. Really? You think it's still possible? I'm afraid it's going to devolve again to a level of frustration because there isn't enough change. The, the political momentum has slowed, the federal legislation stalled. So while you've seen uh, a huge change in the culture and the Black Lives Matter movement has, has gone global, but it hasn't touched the DNA of American policing. Have the underlying problems that existed 30 years ago in South Los Angeles been addressed? I mean, all the basic measures of economic well-being, you know, across the different racial and ethnic groups, there's been very, very little progress since 1992, and in some cases, we've gone backwards. So 1992 really did change your perspective. Oh, 1992 changed everything for me. South LA can feel like a cocoon. As I went to the same shops, um, those shops didn't exist anymore after 1992. The world, they were burned down. They were burned down. The world wasn't like it used to be in 1992. It changed, it shifted. And I've kept that, that shift has stayed with me since that time. So that's why I wear this necklace. In Rhonda's old neighborhood in South LA, a new metro line is being built. The center of a multi-million dollar revitalization project that aims to bring opportunity while celebrating the legacy of Black LA, a legacy of creativity, strength, and continuing struggle. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Stephanie Sai in Los Angeles. Racist memes by California cops. Discriminatory arrests. Audit details bias in law enforcement. While wrapping up a traffic stop at a parking lot, a Stockton police officer walked over to a different parked car with a black man sitting inside. The officer asked the man something he hadn't asked the non-black driver in the initial traffic stop, are you on probation or parole or anything? When the man declined to answer or provide identification, the officer detained him and searched his car, finding nothing illegal. Then, after the man refused to leave the parking lot, Stockton police officers arrested him and towed his car. A Stockton Police Department investigation into the incident found it was an unlawful arrest, and the agency sent letters of reprimand to the officers. But the department did not discipline the officers or issue corrective action related to bias or professionalism. It's one of a number of cases described in a new state audit published Tuesday that found California law enforcement agencies and state prisons failed to do enough to crack down on racial bias and harassment. The audit focused on policies and incidents at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, the San Bernardino Police Department, San Jose Police Department, the Stockton Police Department and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. It found the five departments do not provide frequent enough training to mitigate officer bias, struggle to investigate and address biased conduct, 
lack effective intervention systems to stop officers who display a pattern of bias, overlook signs of implicit bias or subtler signs of bias, and fail to review officers' social media presence. The agencies also lack sufficient strategies to achieve representative diversity in hiring, and fail to seek feedback from the community, the audit found. Departments were aware of incidents where bias may have influenced an officer's conduct because they were documented in department investigation files. But the four local departments often did not take appropriate action to recognize and address possibly biased conduct after it had occurred, state auditors found. None of the departments we reviewed have fully developed and implemented comprehensive efforts to address bias among their officers, the state audit found. Without a comprehensive approach to guard against the presence and effects of bias, the departments will be less able to identify, mitigate, and address bias. Within each department, state auditors found officers who have promoted negative stereotypes and engaged in biased conduct. In one undated case, an officer filmed black incarcerated individuals from a distance and narrated, Black Lives Matter, and in a separate video, used the N-word several times while repeating song lyrics and said in a sarcastic tone, for George Floyd. That officer received a temporary pay reduction, according to the state audit. In another undated case, San Jose police officers responding to a dispute between a landlord and tenant made biased comments about the landlord, who they knew was Vietnamese. After denying her request for a translator and insisting that the landlord return the deposit in cash, one officer said, maybe she doesn't have the money, who knows. I think she has a problem gambling, and detained her. The department later determined bias related to the landlord's race influenced the officer's behavior, and issued a 40-day suspension without pay. Bias in California Cops Social Media As part of its investigation, state auditors reviewed the public social media accounts of 450 officers and found 13 officers who posted bias statements while working as peace officers, 7 in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, 3 in the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and 3 in the San Bernardino Police Department. Examples of biased statements officers shared on social media include a transphobic meme, an anti-Mulsum post related to 9-11, and a post that included the statement, over 620,000 white people died to free black slaves. And still to this day not even one, thank you and we're now known as racists. When an officer engages in biased conduct or makes statements like those we describe in this section, it casts doubt on that officer's ability to treat individuals fairly, the state audit read. Some officers promoted extremist groups, while the state audit did not find officers who were members of hate groups based on their social media activity, auditors identified six people who either publicly defended or promoted content from problematic groups. One officer defended the Proud Boys, a far-right group identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center where rank-and-file Proud Boys and leaders regularly spout white nationalist memes and maintain affiliations with known extremists. Another officer had a profile picture that was an image representing the Three Percenters, an extremist group with some followers who promote hate against and engage in violent acts toward Muslim people, according to the Anti-Defamation League. One officer liked a social media account representing a group that publicly expressed animosity toward immigrants, and another promoted claims that same-sex parents are harmful to children. The biased conduct that we identified at the five law enforcement departments likely occurred in part because the departments have not fully implemented comprehensive strategies for addressing bias within their organizations, the state audit found. Listen, just touching on some real issues right here tonight, that's, that's, right. All. that's all. I all want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up, you know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Stay back. Fall back. 
uh-uh, with the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you gotta do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. In a scathing report published today, the Minnesota Department of Human Rights says that the Minneapolis Police Department has a culture of animus toward people of color and engages in illegal racial discrimination. The state began investigating the MPD a week after Officer Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd in 2020. Reporter Matt Sepik joins us now with more. Hi, Matt. Hi, Nina. Matt, you've been following this this afternoon. How did the state conduct this investigation and, and what specifically did they look at? Well, the State Human Rights Department looked at data from the beginning of 2017 to May 24th of 2020. That's the day before Floyd's murder. They examined around 480,000 pages of records on everything from traffic stops to arrests, searches, and prosecutions. They also looked at reports on police misconduct and officers' use of force and watched around 700 hours of body camera video. At a news conference this morning, Human Rights Commissioner Rebecca Lucero said 2,200 community members gave Gave interviews about their experiences with the MPD, and she said her staff also spoke with dozens of officers. We met one-on-one with officers in every precinct. They did not have to meet with investigators. It was their choice to meet with investigators. And overwhelmingly, we found officers being very forthcoming um, in their conversations with investigators throughout the process. And Lucero says these interviews were conducted with police at all levels, from rank-and-file officers to command staff. And so what examples of racial discrimination did they include? Well, in one instance, Minneapolis police officers posed as black community members on social media and criticized city officials and members of the NAACP. Now, police go undercover on social media every day to investigate crimes, but in this particular instance, Lucero said this was not part of any investigation. Mm. She also said officers are more likely to stop and search and use force against people of color. Black people make up 19% of the population in Minneapolis, but account for 78% of searches. Lucero said the report's authors controlled for geographic location and daytime versus nighttime stops when officers can see a driver's skin color. They also looked at how police treated white and non-white people during traffic stops. Where there is a difference, race is the likely reason for this difference. And you see, when comparing black and white community members in similar circumstances, MPD officers are almost two times as likely to search black community members or their vehicles. And Matt, the report is also highly critical of the language that some officer used when talking about women and people of color. What did investigators find in this matter? Body camera video, discipline records, and citizen interviews revealed multiple instances of officers using racist and misogynistic language. I won't repeat what they allegedly said, but they include animalistic language in reference to black and Somali men, sexist slurs about women, including a police dispatcher. An officer investigating a sexual assault case allegedly said that a man could not be guilty of rape if he and his victim had children together. Officers who were the subject of these comments rarely filed complaints because they didn't think the perpetrators would be held accountable. And prosecutors noted to investigators that it can be difficult for them to rely on body camera video in court because of this disrespectful language. So what's the reaction of city leaders? Well, Mayor Jacob Fry and Interim Police Chief Amelia Huffman held a news conference this afternoon. Uh, Fry said policy changes aren't enough. A major change in department culture is needed. I read the report, most of it anyway, this morning. 
I found the contents to be repugnant, at times horrific. They made me sick to my stomach and outraged, and I think that our community feels the same way. Okay, so now that the report is out, what happens next? Well, Lucero said the Human Rights Department will begin working with the city on a consent decree. That's an agreement overseen by a Minnesota judge to identify specific changes that need to be made in policing. And Nina, this is not the only investigation. The U.S. Justice Department launched its own a year ago, and that could result in a separate federal consent decree. Matt Seppick, thank you for your reporting. You're welcome. As I got to know Los Angeles better... I saw that there were indeed all-black neighborhoods, but there were no slums, no urban blight like in the East. Blacks, poor blacks, may have been living in tiny wooden houses in Watts, but they had the same cool air, the same bright sun, the same palms, the same Pacific. If you were going to be poor, it was a lot easier being poor out here than it was in Harlem. The Southern Blacks had called their immigration to the North, Northeast, their exodus to the Promised Land. Los Angeles held far greater promises in my eyes. I was thrilled that when I gave birth to our daughter Wanda, that first year in Los Angeles, that she would grow up a California girl. The stabbing of a 16-year-old black girl in Lakeside earlier this month highlighted frustration around unchecked racism in East County. Here's community activist Tasha Williamson. We are not going to be protected by police or or FBI or the Attorney General uh, Civil Rights Unit or the DA's office until we are either severely injured or dead. So far, a 16-year-old white boy and a 15-year-old white girl have been charged with attempted murder and a hate crime. Joining me now with more is KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado. Kitty, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kitty, can you give us a recap of what happened since this took place? Well, since the incident, there was a town hall with the sheriff's department and representatives from the DA's office. And also there was an anti-hate rally in Lakeside and civil rights activists continue to call for more arrests. They allege other adults were among the group that confronted the family. And they say one of them is the father of the teen who stabbed the victim and more people should be held accountable. Do we know what condition the victim is in now? Is there any sense of how she's faring after all this? Well, as of last week, uh, when I did the story, she was out of the hospital, still healing, and had not been back to school because the family was in hiding and under protection. But I am being told that the stab wounds are healing, but the invisible wounds, you know, the trauma behind this incident, it's it's very raw and very real. And that's going to take a long time for her to heal from that. As we mentioned, a second teenager was arrested in connection with this case earlier this week. Why did it take so long to arrest the second suspect? Well, that's the question a lot of people have been asking. But on Friday, a teenage girl was arrested. She turned herself in. She's believed to be the girlfriend of the young man who stabbed uh, the victim. And she was questioned and released initially. But detectives said that she played a larger role uh, than they initially believed. And both of them were charged with attempted murder and a hate crime. But yeah, everyone was asking that question because witnesses told police, the family told police, the girlfriend was there. But the family has said that this young lady had a metal rod in her hand and went to hit the victim before she was stabbed a couple of times. And the mom blocked uh, that hit and she, the mom was hurt. 
But in that whole thing that happened, that's when uh, the young lady was stabbed. This case is raising lots of legal questions. Let's talk through some of those. What constitutes a hate crime? Well, I'm no expert by by any means, but I did speak with an attorney who says that a hate crime is uh, something that is committed in whole or in part because of a person's perceived or actual disability, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, or in this case, race or ethnicity. How are hate crimes charged and sentenced? Well, a hate crime can be prosecuted as a misdemeanor or a felony and uh, also can be added as enhancements and it just increases someone's sentence. Why are people concerned about gang enhancement charges not being applied in this particular case? I was wondering the same thing. I'm not very well versed on the history of this area, but community advocates allege that in this case, the people behind the hate crime do have ties to white supremacist gangs. And the sheriff's department has not confirmed this. And the DA says they're still investigating and will hold everyone accountable who's responsible. But civil rights activists have been very clear. They say that when it comes to black or brown people, they often get charged with gang enhancements. And this never applies to people who have ties to white supremacist gangs. And that's the allegation here. And they say the arrest should have been much broader and the investigation should have been immediate. And let's talk about bystander laws. Why weren't others who were present arrested? Because the initial suspect's father was actually there. Well, the attorney I spoke with told me that bystander laws don't really apply in this case. And when I looked into it, it made sense why she said that. She said, you know, because in California, bystander laws apply more to people who, um, like a good Samaritan, who should be there to help someone in distress. But again, the attorney I spoke with says this has nothing to do with with bystander laws. This is more um, adults, you know, were there. They walked over with the teens, confronted the family, so they were more a part of it. And what about parental responsibility laws? Could the parents be held liable for the actions of the two minors who were arrested and charged? I spoke with two different attorneys about this. One told me that it's so rare that someone ever gets charged um, or held responsible for what their child or children did that DAs have a really hard time with this, mainly because they don't want to lose a case. They don't want to charge anyone that they don't feel confident that those charges will stick. But the other attorney I spoke with says these laws definitely apply in this case and parents should be held accountable when their child does something violent like this, especially as it's alleged here that they were also participating You've spoke with members of the Lakeside community following this attack. What's been their response to the way law enforcement is handling this? They're very upset in regards to the way law enforcement has handled this. And they added that uh, this seems to be the way they handle many incidents in this area or when it comes to black and brown people. They say it should have been handled differently. They should have acted sooner. More people should have been arrested. And uh, that the investigation, they say, was botched from the very beginning. And they are calling for the Department of Justice to investigate the Lakeside substation. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado. Kitty, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS video journalist Matt Bowler was on the scene in Lakeside this past Saturday as community members marched in protest of the alleged hate crime. A gallery of photos from the demonstration can be found online at kpbs.org. Our top story, 
As we all know, Congress recently approved paying over a trillion dollars to African Americans as reparations for slavery. Well, today, the first checks were sent out. Wendy Mullen is standing by live in Queens with more. Wendy? Thanks, Chuck. Sir, now that you've got your check, do you plan on quitting your job driving this truck? Truck driving? I ain't no truck driver. I'm a janitor. Janitor? That's right, baby. I just bought this truck straight cash. And I got enough cigarettes to last me and my family for the rest of our lives. Come rich, bitch! The Food and Drug Administration is proposing a ban on menthol cigarettes. NPR's Andrew Limbong reports these cigarettes grew popular among black people after a marketing campaign. There's this classic sketch from season two of Chappelle Show. Welcome to the show, I Know Black People. Dave Chappelle does his best game show host and asks people various questions about black culture. And the very second question is... Why do black people love menthol so much? One of the contestants hems and haws until she says... I don't know, the great That is correct. (laughs) No one knows. Well, the fact is that a lot of people know why. Keith Weilu, history professor at Princeton University. And it's the product of an elaborate and complicated push uh, that really began in the mid-1960s, around 1964, in fact. He is the author of the book Pushing Cool, Big Tobacco, Racial Marketing, and the Untold Story of the Menthol Cigarette. And he says in 1964, federal regulators banned tobacco companies from advertising to youths. No more advertising on college campuses or handing out free Lucy's to young people. So instead, they just pivoted that energy towards black people. And the type of advertising went beyond just knowing what kind of imagery to use. It's the intimate understanding of black social structure. Who are the people who are influence makers in a community? The importance of finding those influence makers. Uh, They could be a barber, they could be a bellhop, uh, they could be a numbers runner, uh, and giving them free samples. And then they'd hand out those cigs to other people. The companies also gave a bunch of money to black periodicals. A lot of black periodicals like Ebony became so dependent on tobacco advertising that they were reluctant, and I would say more than reluctant, silent about the devastating health impact of smoking in the black community. Same with campaign donations to black lawmakers. The FDA's proposal on banning menthol cigarettes said that the move could potentially prevent somewhere between 90 and 240,000 deaths among black people over 40 years. And, says Weilu, it'll interrupt a process that has been creating new smokers for generations. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. My Aunt Pam can put them cigarettes down. So now my little cousin smoking them cigarettes now. His job try to claim that he too niggerish now. It's because of skin blacker than licorice now. I can't figure it out. Why do black people love menthols so much? One thing that I did want to make sure that I asked you to touch on, because I think this is really uh, significant to kind of put all this in context when we think about the research that you put forward and how black people have been deliberately targeted uh, by the tobacco industry, especially for these menthol cigarettes, uh, you have different works, different papers that look at the relationship between melanin and nicotine. Uh, Two of the reports you co-authored, one of them is linked between uh, facultative melanin and tobacco use among African-Americans, this was in 2009, and then melanin and nicotine, a review of the uh, literature. This is from 2005. Uh, Just to read a quick paragraph before I get your commentary, uh, in the 2000 
2009 report that you co-authored, uh, paragraph reads, uh, as posited by Jurger and Malone, 2006, the role of melanin in tissue uptake of nicotine and tobacco-specific carcinogens has potential implications for individuals with high levels of melanin. Given that nicotine has affinity for melanin, high levels of melanin might allow for a greater amount of nicotine to accumulate in melanin-containing tissues. Considering that melanin-containing tissues may represent a reservoir or storage for nicotine, it is plausible that higher melanin concentrations may contribute to higher degree of nicotine dependence and lower quit rates. I think this is real important for black people to kind of think about all of this when we think about black people being targeted for cigarette smoking. Can you talk about your research with melanin and nicotine? Yeah, I absolutely can. And it's, um, I will say to you that I have um, had the privilege of um, talking to a wide range of, um, of African Americans about smoking, and I'm talking young, old, rich, poor, living in the suburbs, living in the inner city, um, leaders, mothers. Um, when I talk about melanin, I get everybody's attention. After considering doing so off and on for more than a decade, the FDA is forging ahead with a proposal to ban menthol-flavored cigarettes. If finalized this summer, the move is expected to reduce smoking levels, but the decision has been met with both praise and criticism. Stephanie Sai has our look. Judy, menthol accounts for more than a third of all cigarettes sold in the U.S., and the cooling, minty flavor is the most popular among certain smokers. Nearly 85% of black smokers use menthol, compared to 30% of white smokers. More than half of all kids who smoke use menthol cigarettes. The FDA said the ban could prevent up to 650,000 smoking deaths over 40 years. Carol Magruder is the co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council, an advocacy group. Carol Magruder, thank you so much for joining us. Banning menthol cigarettes, really, it's been discussed for years under different presidential administrations. How big of a deal is it that this FDA under Biden is finally making this move? This is a monumental day in public health. Um, I, I, the day of the century, I would say, of the last hundred years, this ruling is that important. Uh, we want to make sure people know it's not done. This is the beginning of that process, and so we still need to uh, very much participate in it, and we need to understand that the tobacco industry could also uh, have lawsuits to block it. So this is the beginning of the end, not the end, but it's a monumental day, and the FDA is finally doing what they were mandated to do um, in 2009 when the Tobacco Control Act was passed, and that was to do something about menthol. So it's taken a lot of push. Um, a lawsuit on our part um, with our co-plaintiffs, Action on Smoking and Health, and the American Medical Association and the National Medical Association to get them to move, and they finally have, and we are very grateful. The FDA statement out today um, explained the effects of menthol cigarettes. And one of the facts that I think a lot of people may not know is, is that the flavor actually enhances the addictive effects of nicotine. Um, we also know they are the most preferred cigarettes among black smokers, which your group specifically focuses on, Carol. Talk about some of the ways in which tobacco companies over the years have pushed these cigarettes on black communities. 
Well, through through the tobacco industry's own documents that were released as a part of litigation over all these years, there have been some research papers that have come out. One is called um, Institutional Racism. The other one is Smoking with the Enemy. And it documents in the tobacco industries from their own documents how they have preyed upon African-Americans, how they had special, quote, unquote, urban programs for black people. Um, they distributed free cigarettes in our communities across this country to children as young as nine years old. One of those children was Dave Chappelle when he was 14 years old. He was given free cigarettes in Washington, D.C., in the metro station. And he talks about, in some of his interviews, how he went home and he decided he was going to learn how to smoke. And so that seeding of these deadly addictive products in our communities has been going on for decades. And while we've been very busy fighting for civil rights and all of the other things that we that have happened with Black people in this country, the tobacco industry has been there in the background um, addicting us each generation after generation. In the last 20 years, there have been a million Black people who have died from tobacco-induced diseases. Uh, my mother died from breast cancer. We do all kind of research on what causes breast cancer. We know what caused these million deaths. What caused these million deaths was the tobacco industry. And yet, Carol, there are critics of the ban. They worry it will have unintended consequences, specifically on the black community. Family members of Eric Garner, George Floyd, and Trayvon Martin, as you know, all victims of excessive police force, have signed a joint letter to the Biden administration, which says, our fear is that banning the manufacture and sale of menthol cigarettes will not stop their production or purchase, but will instead open the floodgates for smuggling. While we have been told black smokers will not be criminalized for possessing menthol cigarettes, that does not match our experience with other cigarette policies. Carol, what's your response to those concerns? My response to those concerns are that we have a problem in our country with racism and with the policing of black bodies, and that is a fact. And that the, for the, the tobacco industry, I know that uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and his group, they actually receive uh, money from, from Reynolds American, which is Newport Cigarettes and that he has been one of the people traveling around the country um, with this dialogue. And so, and I respect Reverend Al, he's done tremendous work in our community, but on this issue, it's really the t tobacco industry that is behind it. So that's the group that has killed a million black people in these past 20 years. Um, there are other national organizations that are in full support of taking these products off the market. No one loves a black smoker or black people more than the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. That is why we exist, is to protect our people from this predation. So this is, this is not the end to pass legislation. It's the beginning. And we are all on board. Public health is on board. This is not about criminalizing black smokers. This is about helping black smokers and stopping another generation of black children from being addicted to these products. Our neighborhoods do not have to be this way. And that's what we're saying. It's a new day. Uh, we are grateful to get to this day. That is the next step. Carol Magruder with the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council. Thank you so much for joining the news hour. Thank you so much. Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. <laughs> hey, a nigger raped me. Yeah, guys be going, hey, you sure? <laughs> yeah, they go round up some niggers, you know, like, oh, you were down last week. You know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, will you? We gotta have a lineup. <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was your ass. Free after serving 15 years in prison for a crime he says he did not commit. A judge just granted his wish for exoneration, and Terrence Calhoun walked out of prison a free man. 
This reunion with friends and family is over a decade in the making. Calhoun was originally sentenced to 17 years for kidnapping and sexual assault. 7 Action News reporter Nana St. Chubonsu joins us now with the evidence that cleared his name and why this day almost did not happen. There were so many emotions here outside Woodland Correctional Facility, the second Terrence Calhoun stepped on the other side of these gates after being in prison for 15 years. It's a reunion this mother waited on for 15 years. It finally happened. I knew he was innocent from the start. Her son Terrence Calhoun is free after spending almost half of his life in prison for sexual assault crimes that he was charged with in Detroit back in 2007. Calhoun didn't want to talk, but in this footage from today's hearing, you can hear him interacting with his attorney when he found out he was coming home. We did it. Today, Judge Kelly Ramsey dropped his charges after DNA evidence proved he is an innocent man. All the charges in the above caption matter are dismissed with prejudice. Judge Ramsey was in the process of dropping these charges last week, but the exoneration hearing took a turn when a Detroit police officer walked into the courtroom with files, he said the court needed to see. To ensure the court's opportunity to due diligence, Judge Ramsey gave the prosecution the files and rescheduled the hearing. This is exactly um, what was given to me. Valerie Newman is with the Conviction Integrity Unit at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. She says there was nothing new in the envelope the officer handed over. The file that has already been turned over to them um, and that everyone already had in their possession. Detroit Police Chief James White says the officer's actions are not how the administration expects our investigators to act. The department is currently investigating the incident. It was an act of vigilantism more than so than something you'd expect from a public servant. Mike Middlestat with the State Appellate Defender's Office is Calhoun's attorney. Mr. Kane was involved way back. I don't want to say anything about him, but his stunt that he pulled last week just didn't do anything to remove that cloud, and it's not something uh, we expect of our public servants. Calhoun's father, Terrence Sr., says he's happy his boy is home. All is well. It's a beautiful day today. I just give praise to Allah for this day. Calhoun's family says they're taking their son Terrence straight to Tennessee, where he plans to start his new life. I'm going to say to a bone zoo for seven. Action News. So glad to see so many innocent people released. <sighs> Context of white supremacy. They did not say that Mr. Terrence Calhoun was innocent. Uh, in fact, that was stated at the very beginning of the clip uh, that, you know, they will vacate the convictions and what have you, uh, but that he said he didn't commit these crimes. As we just talked about, in U.S. judicial law, jurisprudence, uh, if you are charged with a crime, you are not declared innocent. You are found not guilty. O.J. Simpson, 101, right? Not guilty. They do not say you are innocent unless you are accused of raping a black female. Crystal Mangum context of white supremacy compensatory call-in gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information about white supremacy racism what it is how it works use of words is critical to all of that today's date saturday april 30 2022 so i have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in 
not for spectators. Dial in if you have a thought to share. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Man, last week, Switchboard was not working. I said it was endless list of problems even had listeners who wrote in our narrator for the book club caller in South Florida and uh, the black African folks who invested and just sent out well wishes like much obliged but man 2022 punishing year worst year ever I think it's been five of those in a row something like that that's what to expect system of white supremacy um, but wowie wowie what a week uh, hopefully we'll have some things to share uh, last week in addition to all the craziness I had computer trouble and craziness that happened all week long and uh, couldn't even access Black Talk Radio Network the switchboard we had people who called in last week who wanted to share their thoughts on you know Chicago Fred Hampton all kinds of things the switchboard wasn't even refreshing properly there were a number of people who in addition to emailing oh man you know hang in there bus tea and blah 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 like hey man you know whatever uh i dialed in to share and you couldn't even get the switchboard to work correctly get it together man. <laughs> like, uh, it's like man I, my apologies to the folks that we missed it it was multiple it would you know i'd have felt bad if it was just one but it was like multiple folks like dang get it together indeed so hopefully that will not be an issue this week the number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate few things to share before we get started I'm gonna give you one quick anecdote maybe two see how long we go but one quick one I love uh, Richmond Beach I was at Richmond Beach several times this week, started to get a little bit, and when I say a little bit warmer, like to be specific, like days where the daytime high will be 60. That's a little bit warm in Seattle headed towards May. Uh, so I've been able to go back to Richmond Beach, which I love easily. One of my favorite beaches in Seattle, favorite places uh, to visit. Like, oh man, if you get to Seattle in the summertime, Richmond Beach. Now, I was at Richmond Beach uh, this past Sunday. I was prepping for the program with Dr. Hutchinson, no count race soldier. So I'm out reading this book, Nella Larson, all that. It's like Sunday morning. I'm going to say it's like 11 a.m., we'll say. I'm at the beach. Beautiful, sunny Sunday morning. I think it might have even got to like 62 this past Sunday. Uh, and so I'm reading the book and Richmond Beach, like you kind of have to uh, hike down uh, into Richmond Beach. And so as you are hiking down, there are many opportunity uh, opportunities uh, for you to stop. And they have like different layers of levels. So they'll have benches and park picnic tables and all that and observation decks and a workout area like Richmond Beach is amazing. Uh, and so. You can stop off at any of these layers, hang out. You have a beautiful view of the beach. You don't even have to go all the way down to the beach, per se, to take it all in. 
So I kind of stop at one of the in-between layers so I can have a table to rest my computer on and get to work. I'm working. And so the level above me, uh, so that, I mean, they're back and above. So I'd say they're maybe 15 feet higher uh, than I am. They have a little trail that you can hike up and there may be, we'll say maybe 15 yards, but I mean earshot. You can clearly hear what they're saying. You're not near the road or anything and the, the water is not roaring. It is nice, tranquil day at the beach, morning at the beach. So this white man is walking his dog. He's with his white woman. I'm going to say they guess that at least the white man who's speaking, he is in his 50s. Uh, and he has his dog with him. Dog is on a leash as they're walking. Signs, dog's supposed to be leashed, all that. He's walking around. He says, as I begin to hear their conversation, uh, he says, yeah, so I was at such and such. I had my dog here and I took him off the leash and he got away from me. And he says, and so there are these two biracial children. I guess Q Cow. Uh, is there these two biracial children? He specifies. He says they had a black parent and a white parent, and there's two of them. And so whatever Fido's name is, you know, he gets he's running, he's chasing after him, and uh, he kind of gets there before I can get like you know the fuss at him. Like, hey, hey, get back over here, calm yourself down. Uh, and so he says this this black guy who doesn't really look like he has any connection to them. Like he comes over and he starts fussing and rah, 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 and he says, you don't know and you don't know what it's like to be bitten by a dog and, rah, 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 and all this other stuff. And so uh, I get the dog and go away, go sit down. And uh, he says, the black guy, so he feels bad about this. So he comes back up to me and he starts talking to me and he's like, yeah, yeah, I should have, you know, tried to be calm, just wanted to come up and say something. He said, then all of a sudden he got mad again. Like, yeah, you should have your dog on a leash, man, and had my children over there, and blah, 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 and all this. And the woman he was with, who could have been his wife, I don't know, uh, she says, oh, that's what you did. Remember that time you, you would calm down, and then you went to go and make peace, and then got mad all over again. <laughs> and so they're chuckling and walking away, and I'm like, like, <laughs> about a billion different things are going through my mind. Number one, I'm reading my book at the beginning. This happens all the time like in the life and times of Gus T. Renegade like I hang up we're done with the program but people say hey man look here you know if you would just stop cooning you are the one who are bringing up racism right you're the one who bring this up if you stop focusing on this that's what they because we're in new age old Seattle that's what they say you you just bring all this because you focus on it you bring it into your life you just focus on racism and racism if you just stop focusing on that if you focus on focus on yoga you love your focus on vegan meals you know you could open a vegan a vegan yoga cafe or something if you put your, your time and focus on that instead of all this racism 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 okay I go to the beach I'm not out here looking I was not looking to hear that conversation or nothing this is what the universe delivers to me remember I told you all last year same time I went to Green Lake and they had the black ducks they might not have been ducks waterfowl and I told you the white people get away from her are they profiling the ducks that's what happens when I try to get off not focus on racism didn't we didn't we read white dog isn't that in the Ferguson report from 2014 2015 when it was actually published maybe you all don't remember Eric Holder remember him he was attorney general 
Justice Department, good old Obama days, they didn't just say, oh, yeah, Darren Wilson and, and company, they beat up on Mike Brown Jr. and all the rest of it. They said, hmm, they got a habit of sticking the canines on the black children in St. Louis. That was in the FBI report. I highlighted that one. In fact, the report that we heard about the police in Stockton, California, it wasn't just about the police and racist memes. It included the canine unit in Stockton, California. That's what I heard at Richmond Beach biracial children he said he didn't even look like he belonged with them I was thinking what is he doing this old black guy what is he doing with the, oh there is oh 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 I say incidentally Seattle does have dog parks I highly doubt he was at a dog park they have leash laws for lots of reasons in Seattle but I suspect it just my uh, recommendation I would not launch into any uh, explanations about white dog how many times you've been bit by a dog or anything else the law is the dog is supposed to be on a leash period that's all it would be you can even put that in the form of a question are there leash laws is that dog supposed to be leashed most of the time I have found that that works uh, white men, white women it's even been groups most of the time not always but most of the time that works because there are laws I don't. I try to have you know not getting any sort of dialogue with white people about and especially it might be indeed a white dog but again I am not an attempted parent oh my god most difficult job in the known universe being an attempted parent of a black child. Gotta make sure you tell them about white dogs as well, racist dogs and racist white people. Anecdote number one, Richmond Beach. Alrighty. Uh, Listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, uh, you can hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Much obliged for all the folks who have uh, invested. Help keep the cows on the air for 13 plus years. Hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Uh, when you hit the blog uh, right beneath the PayPal button, you'll see the links uh, for cash.app, uh, for Venmo, uh, PayPal as well. The address for Cash App, cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous thanks to all the folks who have invested uh, and kept us on the air 13 plus years uh, hopefully we have shared more often than not accurate constructive info on what white supremacy racism is how it works and have emphasized the importance of using precise correct words when articulating this problem and solutions try to get man I'm going a little bit out of order just because wow 
13 years the cows has been on the air my goodness that segment about the menthol cigarettes for years I've said sobriety would be best I've included cigarettes in that many 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 times we'll do so today for sure I totally did not I unfortunately have seen the Chappelle show I've seen it more than five times Uh, I did not remember the game show segment where they are asked specifically about menthol cigarettes I totally forgot that I remembered the iconic phrase or I guess one right up there with Rick James Uh, that's how they end the show right I'm rich B right B-I-T you know I did not or it took a while for me to connect like that's connected to the black male saying that he bought an entire 18 wheeler truck worth of menthol cigarettes you can see like he said cigarettes you heard in the audio but you can actually see the truck and it says cool on the truck that man I hated the Chappelle show I worked I'm a black male victim of white supremacy I worked at a comedy club in Atlanta Georgia not the brick factory even while I worked at that comedy club I did not watch the Chappelle show it took me years to like purge from that experience before I could even attempt to watch the Chappelle show and I this is no metaphor at all because it is Saturday I mean literally I was so disgusted. I did not have the term anti-black in my vocabulary at that time. I was confused about racism, but I knew this is repulsive. I literally, I didn't turn the channel. I turned the television off. Years later, like from that moment and in between when the cows came on the air is only about maybe a couple years in that brief interim Dave Chappelle did a written interview where he talked about leaving the Chappelle show and he said he had times where he was unsure of whether the white staff was laughing at him or with him. You can take either one of those skits with the menthol cigarettes for reparations. Black people, what are they going to do? Buy Cadillacs? Kentucky Fried Chicken and menthol cigarettes. If I'm a race soldier, I am cracking up laughing because even if that's true, who is to blame for that being the aspirations of a black person? Menthol cigarettes and fried chicken, and not just a case, an 18 wheeler's worth of menthol cigarettes or no one knows why menthol cigarettes are so powerful I didn't even know I'll tell you I've said this a few times because we do the news segments and what have you sometimes I enjoy being surprised Jesus Christ today was Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas like Oh my God, like 
because it was triple. I had an opportunity to recover. Like I had no idea like Jesus Christ, Dave Chappelle is in all of these. Oh my God. I didn't even pick that knowing. I just picked it because I remembered the reparations like that became how every show ends. I'm rich B cigarettes, a truckload of cigarettes for my whole family. No one knows why black people smoke menthols wrong. I'm so glad that is maybe the best piece of journalism. That's right up there. That's one of the best pieces of journalism I've heard from NPR wrong because I hear people say Dave Chappelle is an expert on racism. Are you serious? Are you serious? Dave Chappelle is a smoker. And you don't know why you smoke. Man. That right there. Beautiful illustration. Some days it's hard to convince black people. No, you're not an expert about racism. The experts are white. If you want someone to tell you about the nigra, get a white person. You don't want to talk to Dave Chappelle. You probably don't want to talk to too many black people at all. That was one moment where after I got over my shock of, oh my God, especially when I heard the second segment from PBS, which again, I hadn't even heard. I heard it when you all heard it. I did. I listened to enough to get the sound check. I didn't listen far enough to hear. Oh my God. I knew Dave Chappelle was a smoker, but Dave Chappelle is a smoker because white people in Chocolate City gave him cigarettes as a child. Neely Fuller Jr., I've heard him say one of the few things that makes him angry. You know, he talks about keep your composure. Racists, they do a lot of things to manipulate us. Keep your composure. He said one of the few things that challenges him is when people lie to a child, when you deliberately manipulate a child, you know their brain computer is not fully developed and everything, and you're taking advantage of someone who is not even developed yet. They're not even mature mentally, physically, nothing. You're going to go and lie and manipulate a child. Said, Man, that is something that really, like, he said, I get angry about that. You go and put, you, and matter of fact, that's one, hey, context of white supremacy has been here for 13 years. Some things we've not done well. Health is not one. From day one, Vernelia Randall dying while black, 2009. I could have sound clip there. We talked about that extensively, all of it, everything that they said. Deliberately targeting black people, giving away cigarettes, funding black politicians. She even mentioned Cynthia McKinney, victim of racism. All in having a brand of cigarettes that's supposed to be motivated or connected to the legacy of Malcolm X. I think they would call it brand X and have it in red, black, and green or some other tackiness. That was when we were first 2009, first year that we got back on the air. And then the sound clip that you heard Kanye West, his aunt smoking cigarettes, and then bam, now his nephew smokes cigarettes. Why is that? in Chicago. Why is that another place with a lot of black people just like Washington DC? Dave Chappelle, 
why is that Dave Chappelle and Dr. Welsing in uh, DC who talked about melanin but that wasn't her that was Professor Valerie Yerger from 2016 on the cows where we talked about her extensive research on why cigarettes are especially dangerous for people with a higher concentration of melanin September 2016 to be specific same year Dr. Welsing transitioned and that was like two months before Donald Trump won the uh, presidency on the counter racist grind Gus T's family members smoke cigarettes this is when I'm sure a whole lot of folks can say oh wow wow race soldiers got us on that one too and with the cigarettes that's one that what's that word that they've said for two years now with COVID-19 comorbidity and that's one that we talked about with uh, when we read Countdown Shauna Swan that was one that she talked about like ooh, if you're trying to procreate and have children you should definitely not be smoking like well in advance of trying to conceive lots of harmful effect and not in fact what you heard in the segments they said that this campaign targeting black people they had intimate knowledge of the nigra who are the folks who will inspire the nigras the bellhops the pastors who do we need to talk to and give them a few Lucy's Dave Chappelle these are not your experts on white supremacy racism racist man racist woman racist child they are the experts sobriety would be best especially cigarettes Uh, I guess the addition since Gus T was born in VA I am very certain if this has finally happened because we talked about banning menthol that's why I said like I could say dang we could get on the counter racist grind and talk about this but we already talked about all this repeatedly in the archives I guess it would be go back and make sure you heard because we talked about in 2009 why can't they ban these menthol cigarettes why can't they ban these menthol cigarettes 13 years later maybe we can creep to it I would say in that 13 years the tobacco industry has had a lot of time to come up with all these new cool gadgets and e-cigarettes and all because that stuff was nowhere near what it is now in 2009 when we talked about this with Vernelia Randall Dying While Black great book whole chapter on cigarettes in that book but I'm sure especially since we got cannabis becoming legal in more and more and more and more oh yeah we can let the menthol go now no problem got a different type of green for you now sobriety would be best uh, let's see uh, get in one more segment before I get to the I'll just do the metaphors because that'll give me an opportunity to say a lot and then I can come back and kind of fill in other little tidbits 
uh, give folks make sure that the switchboard is working correctly. Uh, this is the one broadcast where I request that we not use metaphors. One thing that I hope has been conveyed uh, over the program over the 13 years, uh, I have concluded unequivocally. One of the main, like, top five reasons this problem has not been solved most of the information books videos uh, magazines whatever other content mediums uh, with information about white supremacy racism is not accurate people use incorrect terms they they don't even have a way to articulate the problem what it is things that we should be doing most of the time it's just catchphrases metaphors and rhetoric it is very difficult to solve a problem when you go and you try to learn study research no one is able to speak about the problem in an accurate manner and that is the case 99% of the time even if you try to get serious you will struggle getting accurate information about what exactly are we talking about here we had many examples today I mean that's the case every time but I mean wow it was amazing today uh, they when they spoke I mentioned the bricks uh, factory in Atlanta I lived in Atlanta Georgia wow uh, in that <laughs> in that segment we heard a lot of black male privilege they are right the niggers at the brick factory in Atlanta Douglas Blackman guest on the cows what have we been doing for 13 years that was 2010 uh, they said akin to slavery WTH what does that even mean Douglas Blackman's book is slavery by another name not akin to slavery Minister Malcolm X again he said either you are a slave or you are not he said what is a second class citizen what does that even mean you don't have a such a thing either you're a victim of white supremacy or you are not akin to slavery what especially when you read Mr. Blackman's book or get the details what were they required to do with this brick factory in Atlanta how much blackmail privilege did they have they see uh, oh my god they said the tentacles talking about the brick factory in Atlanta the tentacles of this system I'm in Seattle Washington man do you all know we got a hockey team called the Kraken you see all the little white people they go to the hockey games dressed as Squidward and uh, an octopus and all the other little sea creature the tentacles what are we that's what I mean where you can't really understand like what what are you talking about when they talked about uh, Harvard and their connection to slavery, Jesus Lord, they said we are going to call this the legacy of slavery at Harvard. Now they talked about eugenics, 
denying black people entrance and how black people are dumb and ignorant in addition to all of the other, you know, enslaved black people and blah, 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 and all that. Uh, why not white supremacy racism at Harvard? Now, more accurate because they use that little tacky phrase for everything. The legacies of slavery, the vestiges, that's the one. Oh, somebody got a raise for that one. Vestiges. I don't even hear anyone use the term vestige in any other context except white supremacy racism. We don't have any other vestiges. What else did they have? Incidentally, since I did get to bring that up, I am totally opposed to any sort of uh, memorials, period. As long as we have a system of white supremacy racism, I don't care what it is. If they come in, we're going to do a memorial to Gusty, your grandparents, all the people in your family who smoke cigarettes. We'll do a memorial to the cows. We'll do a memorial to all of that. Yoga and vegan food to boot. Absolutely not. No memorials until white supremacy racism has. But we will have about eight billion tacky memorials to all the different ways that we have been terrorized and then they have to make 8 billion more by the time they get those done not to mention the white contractors who will get paid and all the rest of this like just replace white supremacy with justice and then maybe we can talk about putting up some memorials or what have to after this problem has been solved but in the meantime I'm totally opposed to any sort of memorials other tacky metaphors let's see they had reparations as a hot topic not sure what that means that's even kind of related to uh, delectable negro because you have hot meals and hot lunches hot food Uh, hot plate even delectable negro still Uh, she said when they were the representative from Harvard was being asked about uh, this endowment hundred million dollar endowment and why not reparations which is a hot topic and she says well we like where we've landed are we jumping skydiving what, what's going on landed uh, we had Mr. Fuller's favorite term struggle that was when they were talking about Rodney King and the police beatings and all of that incidentally that's one of the tackiest uh, this is all rhetoric and metaphors and all of that the rhetoric of oh my lord and Jesus we are just so ignorant we had no idea Oh, Eric Garner is out here dying in the street for these uh, Newports and what have you. We just didn't know. We didn't know about Rodney King, really. We didn't know about Watts. Like you have one of these major police uh, conflagrations uh, at least once every 20 years or so. At least. There is no way. You had President Bush. President Bush and future President Clinton. Both went to L.A. Watts. Oh my gosh. What are we going to do? Vote for me. Didn't do nothing. At least didn't do anything in that area in terms of L.A. and Rodney King. Uh, Any other ones? Oh, but they had struggle. Yes, the struggle. The struggle. When they spoke about Terrence Calhoun, uh, black male rapist at the end there, uh, they said that there was a cloud over the case that one is in the word guide I believe cloud darkness Mm. 
again if we could be precise about our word choice for the broadcast that would be grand uh, racist they do a lot of this deliberately to keep us confused number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate first few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share line should be open proceed Can I be heard? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, our Bay Area mom, I believe. Okay, yes, that's me. Um, thank you for taking my call. Uh, so, I took notes today. So, um, um, the uh, LAPD, um, so you did a, had a segment on the LAPD and, um, if it was like a thirty year uh thirty years from maybe this month with the beating of uh Rodney King and I do remember the um the little girl that got shot by that uh Korean lady at the store. That was a long yeah, I guess thirty years ago there. But um it I didn't know that that was the spark. I probably wasn't gonna know because that we, we were, um, we get distracted by our own little issues. But I didn't know that that kind of, um, sparked, uh, the Rodney King, um, uh, tension as well. Um, and then I remember the lady saying it would be that the way it's going now, maybe the city or black people in general, or one more video away from a riot. So I don't know. I don't know what that means yet. Uh, but it was interesting that that statement was said aloud. Um, and I also noticed that they use the word bias instead of racist. Like when they talk, we're talking about just the different conduct um, with the police and just anybody in general is always, the words are always softer when they're used, when they're speaking to protect themselves against mistreating black people, they say bias, but it's when it's maybe another set of white people, depending on the religious practice, it's racist if it's us or somebody doing something to particular people that are classified as white. It's just interesting how they change the word and now then how they loop in um, different other victims. So we're biased with, you know, LGBT and women and, you know, all this stuff, dog owners. They loop that up with uh, racism. Uh, against black people and um, the cigarettes too. So um, it was a, str- a true um, campaign um, towards black people because I remember, that's what I do remember about uh, uh, the 70s and um, 
80s, but particularly the 70s, the black women um, in particular, they were always modeling in the magazines with cigarettes. Everything they did, they were very pretty and they dressed very nice, but they never had anything to do in the advertisement, but just looked very pretty and very, you know, nice and posed with the cigarettes. And then there's a gentleman next to them, maybe well-dressed gentleman, maybe if they're going or having two people or a whole array of us sitting together just smoking and and having a good time. And, you know, of course, the advertised um, cigarette. But when white women, I remember the Virginia Slim, so I don't think Virginia Slim was menthol, but we got the cools, and I totally remember the cools. I don't remember every bit in the hedges, but, uh, yeah, because that was a menthol. So all the menthol cigarettes were really pushed towards uh, us in our magazines and, you know, like maybe Soul Train or whatever those uh, programs that we will watch all at the same time. Um, And I do remember you had someone on that was talking about the menthol and um, melanin. Um, And then for them to mention it, it's like they knew that as well because they study us. So they knew how, how it would affect us the melanin and, um, I mean, the menthol. And then the deaths from that. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, hmm, it's almost election time. <sighs> They're always acting like we're not doing nothing for them. Okay, let's, let's ban cigarettes a little bit some places because in the Bay Area, they did already ban them. Um in Oakland, you got to sneak and go to the smoke shops and get the menthol. And um, they have it behind uh, wherever they have it. So it's uh, it's just, um, I don't know, it just seems like to me it's for something else. It's not for the greater good of the people that were addicted to the menthol. It makes me believe that it's because um, they want votes to make it seem like they are doing stuff for black people. So vote for me. I don't know. I just always think it's funny that around election time, they start bringing up the different things they're going to do. So that's what I think about that menthol stuff. Um, (laughs) So they did strike yesterday, um, Oakland School District. Um, they had a strike um, because they were um, talking about, for a couple of years, closing down certain schools. Um, I didn't even think about it being schools for that uh, took in special needs children until listening to the audio, because there's a lot of schools that they kind of shifted around that would allow special needs children you know, they had different areas for those children to learn um, and to take that away, knowing that there's going to be a lot more children with special needs because the spectrum is going up. Um, and I'm sure it's not, you know, missing that part of California. So where will these children be educated? Are they going to bus them out somewhere? Where, where, where is that going to be? 
And then, of course, you get more money for those children in the schools. So maybe that, so if they bust those kids out, because they got to get education, so you bust those kids out to another district, and then they get the money for the kids and just close these schools down and let them sit for however long and then build something else there, maybe some school for other nationalities or something else. Um Oh, and then the underfunding, too. So I didn't think about um, that being a part of the unenrollment. I mean, the uh, yeah, the unenrollment problem. So they said they didn't have enough um, people applying or enrolling, and they're not funded enough maybe to do whatever they do to get some of the kids there, maybe busing, maybe however it is, uh, supplies, I don't know. Um, and then how the Caucasians or non-black people didn't want their children to be a minority at the school. So they're like, I don't care if it's right across the street, next door. My child's not going there being a loser. So it makes me think, too, that if you're, if when we send our children to the school where they're the majority, they're not going to want to be themselves. They'll adopt the characteristics of the white people or the people that they're around. So maybe white people on top of everything else don't want their children acting like our children. Um, and that's all. Thank you. I'll hit my line. Mm. Much obliged, uh, Bay Area mom. Uh, just repeating... We talked about this yesterday on or yeah neutralizing workplace racism with regards to school uh helping those who need the most help and making sure that they get help first like why in the world would it be the special needs students at a school with a lot of black students like that should be absolute last school that we're going to close down or what have you because they need the most help. We don't want to disrupt and have, as you said, bust them all over the kingdom come metaphor uh, and disrupting whatever rapport that they have with educators and all the rest of like, come on. And I thought that was so important in that segment. Incidentally, I don't think I ever meet anyone who is like, I love Oakland it's great here. It's awesome because I love California. I lived in the Bay Area. I taught in the Oakland school system. I literally, I lived close enough like I could walk. I think it was less than a block from my residence to the like literal Oakland line. I lived in Tan uh, San Leandro, but they're right like Two, there are two different streets that I could have taken probably more than that but at least two uh, that I could have taken and it would have been one block and bam I would fall into the uh, Oakland district international and uh, what's the other one it'll come to me in a second uh, McDaniel? MacArthur MacArthur. I had two, two different ways that I could have walked into uh, Oakland I started to get ready to brag about Oakland, all of the places that I loved hanging out, doing things in Oakland, with the exception of the Oakland Hills, were in Berkeley, 
and San Francisco and San Leon, like they're all dotted around, like right there. Oakland is right in the middle of all of those places. But I really did not hang out in Oakland. And generally, it was exactly what you heard from Raphael Sadiq. It would be people like, oh, yeah, Oakland is great, but I got to get out of here. <laughs> Black people white people that I knew who lived in Oakland Hills they never said that like oh my god we would go and run in the redwoods it is amazing like you can see the bay and San Francisco and they never said that but the black people that I knew who lived in Oakland like places like the bottoms oh my god like nobody wanted to stay and hang out in Oakland but yeah the white people said we don't want to send our children there oh my god they'll be my Dr. Welsing emphasized that all the time a crucial component of the why white supremacy racism individuals classified as white are a tiny minority on the planet she emphasized that all the time now you extrapolate that forward especially the data where they keep saying hey white people are going to be a so-called minority here and with all of the fertility problems Judith and Lathan many at Shauna Swan that's the whole name of the book we read countdown white she's I think it's the majority of white males in Europe and North America having fertility issues by 2060 now you take that where they've said increasingly that's what the classrooms are going to look like it's not just going to be uh, this school in Oakland that's going to be widespread so what do they do then some folks will say hey continued erosion of public schools where it will just be worse and worse and worse because the attitude will be exactly what you heard I'm not sending my child there to be some minority around all these niggers lots to think about moving forward uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, star six one. If you have a uh, commentary to share, proceed. Hello. May I be heard, please? Irie in Louisiana, Cancer Alley. Cigarettes down there on top of all the environmental poison. Yeah. Um, well, before I get into that, hope up, everyone. Um, hope you're. Hope you're doing well, despite the condition of the, you know, planet and the people who are non-white victims of racism. Um, oh Lord, um, just listening to this, these, uh, clips and stuff, you know, I was thinking about how I could explain to the teenagers I've been able to interact with about um, the system of racism without it being uh, too convoluted for them. And I was just thinking, uh, I think it was Mr. Fuller that said it. Um, I just, I would just tell them the people who have the power don't have the will. And the people who have the will don't have the power. And that's all I heard. I mean, that's all I hear every time with a few, you know, kids that offer hope, I guess. You know, just something to keep you motivated and, and wanting to produce justice. But it was a little bit uh, depressing, especially with Tasha Harlan's recipe. Um, uh, 
Oh God, I'm so sorry. I forgot his name that fast. I'm sorry. I'm a victim. I hit my head a long time ago. Uh Rodney King. Okay. That's the beast, Rodney King. Um but I wanted to tell you guys that reading Nella Nella Larson may not be a bad idea. Um for me, I, I like it because I actually have the book and we were made to read it when I went to this creative art school um, for creative writing and all the teachers um, that we had exposure to were white and um, they loved it. They loved the book. And the only thing they seemed to focus on was Miss Larson's uh writing like her, her her style per se and they focused on the jealousy between the protagonist and antagonist but they didn't racism didn't come up no it was it, it did come up obviously it was about escaping you know anti-blackness among black people against themselves but it didn't come up that way it was like oh you know such secrecy such jealousy and da 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 you know, and being a part of, you just got the understanding that being white allowed you to have access to opulence and allowed you uh, and that was the only things that were really, really stressed in that particular um, critique of the book, so I'd love to read it again as a fully grown adult with more understanding of the system of racism and white supremacy. So this is my spiel. I try not to go too long about it. Um, as a smoker, a person that used to smoke, so I guess I'm in the same position as people that say, you know, they're alcoholics even though they don't drink. Um, the biggest reason that I can think of uh, mentally why black people smoke is, is stress. It's the pressure. It's life. It's the system. You you get to a point that you get so freaking low on yourself and your confidence, and I'm not trying to get emotional, but, you know, coming from a place where I was coming out of the military with certain skills that I was told I was going to be able to market into a career and then getting a degree and then being ignored when I submitted resume after resume after resume went to networking event after networking event. Um, and basically the only choice I had after a while was to apply to, um, you know, a uh, teacher's aid job, um, paraprofessional jobs. And then I eventually transitioned into substitute, which was way more fulfilling. But then, you know, it, it I've told the stories about that. Um, until I was able to get another job that ended up, you know, I was being a caretaker and I ended up getting hurt. You know what I'm saying? And then had to switch back over to substituting the supplement and then got hurt again. But uh, over the years of enduring that, you know, I kind of gave up on myself and it was subtle suicide because I just didn't care anymore. I just, I just, I just, I wasn't about to smoke weed. I had a child. I didn't want to be out of my mind. Um, drinking, I think, comes hand in hand with smoking after a while, especially for black people. So every now and then when I would go with friends, you know, there would be something to drink, something to smoke. 
Sometimes there would be weed there. Sometimes it wouldn't be. Sometimes people would be like just smoking black and mild. But, you know, for me, uh, after a while, when I was smoking cigarettes and I uh, experimented with menthol, it, it's an overwhelming feeling of relaxation and suppression of whatever could possibly be going on in your body. It has a numbing effect. Uh for the people who are older than me and people who have experienced like was it cancer or whatever that you put on your muscles for soreness, imagine that on the inside of your body tingling through your brain and your lungs at the same time. And every time a person smokes certain cigarettes that I won't name, you know, they have these devices where it gives you a burst. I know that that mechanism of chemically is probably addictive in itself, obviously. But when you experience that, you know, it's that's such a relief. And it, it's easy to do because you can't get in trouble for it like like people could for a time with, with cannabis. So when I was working, taking care of people, and I would get mandated, like, People, I don't think people, a lot of people understand, maybe the retired firefighters and other people that, uh, what's her name, Amy, that worked in um, a care facility. When you get mandated, you, I'd literally work a little bit before my shift to try to avoid getting mandated and fill in those hours that I knew I was going to need to not get mandated and then do my shift. <laughs> And then end up doing a third shift. I would work a day, like 18 hours. The only way I could get out of that, out of that particular unit or that, that house where those individuals were was for a smoke break. <laughs> so it's like they understood that the plantation masters understood that they were not, we, we didn't get lunches. We didn't get lunch breaks for real for They broke the law. The only time you could step out, I'm going to smoke. People are like, oh, okay. So that, that, that's the trap, how people become smokers too. These jobs that they're working on that are oppressive and don't give you any relief except to go out and kill yourself in, with micro doses of, of concoctions of nicotine and this other stuff. I'm just glad that I wasn't a person that smoked the cigarettes down to the filter, which I'm sure would have really did something. And I'm just praying to the ancestors and and everything righteous and just now that I know better and I take care of myself and, you know, I warn kids that somehow it'll balance out and I won't die from something harsh like cancer or something else. But it is taking its toll. You know, I have like certain like you know it causes issues with your skin i have some skin issues that i'm dealing with and um my heart is fine my lungs are fine but i definitely feel like maybe somewhere with my brain neurologically it, it did something that i can't necessarily measure without going to the doctor and i don't want to keep going but that's basically all i have to say that that's how it happens and and it can also help kids if they see you smoking cigarettes they'll probably smoke weed and I think that's what happened with my son so yeah that's what I want to say thank you sorry I was adjusting my 
headset, not uh, trying to give any oh. cues or anything. My, uh, yeah, I was just trying to adjust my headset. Sorry about that. Um, Can I but, just say this real quick? Yeah. Um, yeah, just don't smoke, please. Like, don't smoke at all. But I, I say this plaintively and, and repentively, and I, I apologize to my son for the weak moments I had smoking uh, in front of him when he caught me. And I know that gave him leeway to try cannabis. And that was really it. So thank you. Good night, everybody. Okay. <clears throat> Much obliged uh, for sharing. I know you've talked about your child many, many, many times uh, over the years and encouraged folks to warn. What did I just say? 13 years. That's how long we've been on the air. Very first. That night, whew, you just stand by your work. 13 years we were on Vernelia Randall was on in August 2009 so we came on back on the air in February of that year uh, excellent work uh, her book Dying While Black has amazing suggestions Vernelia Randall in fact because I thought we should have her back on the program because she's been on many many times uh, even since COVID-19 she came to talk again and it, again they say cigarette smoking that is a comorbidity COVID-19 they've said that for two plus years now anywho um, but yeah you talked about that with your child I said hey they've had 13 years from the time we talked with Vernelia Randall the first time around what are we gonna do we can't stuff the niggers with our poison menthol cigarettes anymore <gasps> cannabis hmm they've had 13 years to invest diversify they'll call it that word again they've had 13 years to diversify sobriety would be best uh, I can't say it enough addictive because everything that she said is is totally the experience of so many people I have so many family members uh, who smoked cigarette like many 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 family members uh, who smoked cigarettes and Oh my gosh. When I said I worked at that black comedy club, I listened to that program with Valerie Yerger, 2016. Talked about melanin, nicotine. I told her I worked at a black comedy club in Atlanta, didn't watch Dave Chappelle, but I watched boxes and boxes and boxes of Cool's menthol cigarettes come into this black comedy club owned by a black person only one non-black person worked there 95% of the clientele black people but I mean they we had cool uh, ashtrays all the tons of them more ashtrays than you could use forever ever in 50 lifetimes uh, and then cheese I mean there were just cigarettes and cigarettes and cigarettes tons of black people smoke but they smoked uh, Newport so they would just pile up they would give them away like if someone came in and was trying to hey man let me get a cigarette let me get a cigarette and be like oh no 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 you can't have my good Newport there you go and they would just they had so many that they if you asked for like one Newport cigarette they would give you like two cases of Cool's menthol cigarettes like oh no you can't have my Newport like bang that was the end like everybody at Black and Miles you mentioned those cannabis all of that stress live in Atlanta the brick factory that right 
wait a minute, where did all these cigarettes come from? Where did all these black and milds come from? White people make a whole lot of things illegal or difficult to obtain for black people. Why are menthol cigarettes superfluous and well advertised? Bay Area mom talked about that like, oh man, you go back and look at all of those Negro films. Shaft, we talked about that. Everything's smoking, mm, smoking. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, get that poison in there and look cool. You go back and look through all the publications, Jet and all that stuff. Cigarette uh, advertisements. Ooh, boom, boom, boom. This was back before everybody was on a cell phone. They were in the magazine. So you can go back, go to the library and check. You'll see all of those advertisements for Newport menthol cigarettes. Males and black males and black females generations of that not by accident it's just like you were saying with the work you don't get a yoga break I'm stressed I gotta work all this do these extra shifts hope I don't get mandated and written up and everything else let me get a meditation break let me get an organic produce break let me get a smoothie no 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 no. let me get a poison break so I can go out all that menthol goodness and my melanin and that nicotine because I think Professor Yerger and Valerie Randall they both talked about dang black people start smoking way later in life than black people and they don't smoke as much as white people but the cigarettes have a substantially more devastating impact why is that Dave Chappelle (laughs) why is that hmm same thing Dr. Welsing said about cannabis what just keep keep repeating myself sobriety would be best we don't exactly have a lot of scientists laboratories institutes let's go in here and see everything that's in this Newport cigarette or everything that's in this black and mild and how that interacts with your melanin and all the rest of since we don't have all that information no smoking vaping sobriety would be best and yes we are going to be stressed as victims of white supremacy white people always will offer us every sort of non-constructive dangerous so-called remedy that will just create new problems here drink this get a malt liquor here smoke this this will make you feel better here have sex with a white woman or a white man or both it'll be all kinds of as opposed to maybe don't practice race oh no 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 no. here take this case of cigarettes (sighs) can't get up she said that and I've seen that too we can't get reliable bathroom breaks or lunch breaks but we can get a break to go and smoke a poison menthol cigarette that right there tells you a whole lot about the environment that we're in and black culture because it seems like menthol if I listen to Dave Chappelle menthol cigarettes might be a part of black culture and Sanford and Son.
other folks who dialed in 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate may I be heard our caller in Florida yes sir Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I just had just a few things I wanted to mention about the segments. The first was the the young victims in the, I don't know, I think that was a high school. I think that was the lacrosse team, and that was an interesting that they um, made it a point or they focused that lacrosse is a majority white sport or something. And I'm thinking that also meant that the people that were in, ten- that were in attendance uh, at that school, maybe it was called Cherokee, uh, were mostly white people and at one point, it was saying that I think one of the referees or something uh, made the boys, the, the racist suspect boys, leave. And then in another instance, they said that they didn't leave. They were still there, and they were still terrorizing the uh, black females, that it sounds like, um, saying the word nigger. Uh and in response, I think they got a comment from the president or some people that attended the event, and they were like, "Hey, you know, we we don't we didn't hear anything. I don't remember hearing anything." And I noticed they didn't say the people they asked whether they were white or not. I'm I'm suspecting uh, they were white people, uh, and they were practicing racism, practicing racist code. Uh, defending and encouraging racist behavior. And the victim, I think, said that they were, she said that they were making it look like we were lying about it. And I've noticed that happening on a job and in many places. Uh, And that's just one instance where white people aren't ignorant. And then another one where it was a uh, something about where they were talking about. I think they said a racial bullying or something like that, where the the person said that on their cell phones they had sounds of a cracking whip when and they knew when to um, have the sound the audio playing when they were walking around black students. So. That that's once again that kind of racism being practiced um, that can really be stress inducing, and I believe that was the principle again. I don't know if it was in that segment or in the prior one, where that cliche, where they say, "Hey, you know, no no one's perfect, or you know, we all can't be perfect." Whatever that might mean, um, that's just a way to also practice racism like it's not occurring or it's not happening. And one last 
comment was on the uh, the segment about I think that was Harvard where they mentioned the eugenics ideology and they they used the word pure or purity like breeding or something like that and keeping the uh, human race pure and I thought about how that word pure was used in that context and I'm thinking about um, like studying that uh, looking that up and seeing how that word is used like how the word fair is used or bright um, bright intelligence and all of that uh, and the one last thing that it was a metaphor that was used salt in the wound and salt is white and that's salt and sodium blood pressure. So I, I was just like, wow, to use that kind of metaphor, putting salt in the wound when addressing racism. And that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged. Uh, our caller in Florida. Uh, I didn't even mention the salt in the wound metaphor because I believe that was also the lacrosse situation in uh, Georgia where they said you know that they basically accused them of lying saying hey you know talk to the folks afterwards who I suspect as you probably mostly white people could have been exclusively white witnesses that they talked to hey I didn't hear anyone say no what you talking about yeah I didn't hear anything how about did you see any students or any spectators period asked to leave the game how about that and then did they leave or did you see them stay and continue to cause mischief those would be two great questions to ask too like oh, okay we don't know about nigra how about that other part that's journalism that's what they say you dig 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 anywho that salt in the wound I said ooh wee that sounds like another delectable negro metaphor as well because I thought most people have salt on their table anywho uh, yes much of the the other uh, school segment uh, the man I heard that I thought there were so many different things that happened and you know it's a long week craziness computer issues and what have you any other time I probably would have done a rewind for having a phone app where you can do the whip the lash sound effect and having the white students out in the hallway when they see their darker melanated class like wow that I mean any other time I probably would have rewound just for because I mean that's the sort of thing like see because even I can kind of yeah you just you hear all these different things and it just kind of glides I'm like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean whoa 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 <laughs> whoa 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 and, and they didn't say like this was one child that's not what they said they said plural app on the phone which if you are going to produce a black child that's the sort of thing that you need to think about like in depth way before you get to the bedroom and have many many 
honest and detailed conversations about how you make sure that is never your child's academic experience unless anyone here thinks hey that is what I want for my child like that right there I don't want to the, the whole closing the schools down in Oakland that's where my child needs to be at I need the one where they that's the sound of academic success right there is 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 that the sound of white ignorance that's one you can put that together white people they had intimate knowledge of the negro so-called community to make sure they said 85% of smokers use menthol cigarettes that is extraordinary our what a, the cows ends with our conditioning has been conditioned you got that on the one hand Dave Chappelle is a cigarette smoker and doesn't know why that's the case meanwhile in addition to white people having think tanks to get intimate knowledge to market successfully to the Negro community for generations white children have apps on their phone with a whip sound effect remember the one we had two weeks ago where the white children they had the group they were slave masters the one he said oh I'm the slave man I know how to handle them maybe he had the the whip sound effect on his phone too or she If it's Dave Chappelle, you can even take Dave Chappelle now, 2022, or the white 12-year-old with the whip sound effect on their phone. Who do I think is more informed about racism? Any other folks have comments here they wanted to share? You miss any folks, any folks with a hand up? Can I be heard? One of our investors, also in Florida, Princess with us. Yes, ma'am. Good to hear from you. Hey, good evening. Uh, I know it's been a long time since I've called in, been kind of busy. Um, I would just say um, it's, I guess I'm a little bit frustrated um, because especially after this election, um, to answer your question as far as who's more confused about racism, I would have to continue to conclude it's us because um, it just seems like we're just so prone to, we're, we're just comfortable now, um, you know, just falling for the same or being duped uh, for the same. And uh, I don't know, like, like Kanye West said, it's um, slavery is a choice. And I guess on the 3rd of November last year, black people made their choice, but I, um, no, just, I, I'm just like frustrated with, with black people in general when it comes to stuff like that. 
Um, you know, I would have thought uh, we would have taken advantage, or at least especially uh, people that have children. Uh, it seems like I've been hearing more of complaints from um, uh, black parents. Um, you know, I work in telecommunications, and um, so I deal with a lot of the uh, customers firsthand. So I know all of the stuff that's going on as far as with um, the whole situation around um, being able to get um, and deliver Internet service uh, to uh, black people. Um, you know, the pandemic kind of exposed all that, um, the lack of Internet access uh, most black people have. And it just seems like um, I just heard more complaints. Um, we don't know how to maximize um even in, in chaos, um, there is a silver lining. And, you know, at least um, in the beginning, I noticed that when we were in lockdown and people were having to um, be forced to stay home and keep their kids home, you didn't have any, hardly any stories of, you know, black kids being terrorized at school or anything like that. I mean, you you hear some little things on Zoom calls, but nothing like we we had grown accustomed to over the years, over the past 13 years, uh, the stories that we hear uh, of the verbal, physical uh, assaults that these kids are having to be subjected to. Um, like I said, I don't have kids, so I may have my um, biases, but I just, you know, I have nieces and nephews, and I, I, just, I just don't see a, a lot of black parents just, trying to um, take advantage of out of chaos, um, you know, to some degree, because I guess some of us are still walking around confused. But I could be wrong. Was that your final thought, ma'am? Yes. Much obliged. Sorry for your frustration. That's been many, many, many folks uh, over the past two plus years of the pandemic and then all of white supremacy as well. Uh, I just generally speaking in the system that we currently have, the people who do best under conditions of chaos are classified as white. Uh, one, they are way less confused uh, about what's happening and they have way better resources uh, and even many, many white people have been stressed over all this. I mean, to have lots of black people who have way less resources and are confused, like, yeah, lots of folks. And I know, especially with, I am not a parent, so, you know, what do I know? Uh, but at least my general sense is that I think at least for a lot of uh, parent, or I guess one, I start with, uh, hey, what I, I can't say, it's not even funny. It's not funny at all, but uh, I know one of the hallmarks of the past two years and zoom has been every day penises and racism on zoom like that is oh my gosh that was every day and continues right now uh through the pandemic where lots of folks had there and i mean i'm talking k through grad school uh, they had people who were going, they had black students who were going and getting their PhDs 
and master's diplomas and things where they did all this work and money and everything and they had to do it via Zoom because of the pandemic. And so they get their cap and gown and get in front of the camera and then all of a sudden, wait, we got somebody put a penis in, what, and a swastika. Uh, eh. Okay, we've been, I mean, that was no, I, every I day. I didn't hear about that one. <laughs> that was every day. Like, I mean, little, I'm not exaggerating uh, or anything. This was every day during the pandemic, kindergarten, and not just the U.S. This was all over. I mean, it got so bad. I think by the time August, it was cliche. So that's one. It just wasn't physical, but oh yeah, that continued. We just couldn't reach out and touch you directly, but I definitely can draw a penis on my screen here and disrupt your Zoom. Mm. Or just come in and nigra, 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 or sometimes they would come in and Zoom bomb with pornography to get it shut down. Like that happened over, that's still every day. Two, uh, because of what you said with a lot of black parents, even some cows listeners, where they call it the digital divide, another tacky metaphor, not having Wi-Fi and some of the tacky suggestions. That was a huge uh, impediment. And they've talked about lots of the uh, they call it disparities uh, in terms of black children who have really suffered. Uh, and it's just been so much chaos. Like, are we going to school? We're not going to school. You're going to wear a mask. We're not going to wear a mask. And all the rest of it. They had the report. They're closing some of the schools and staff is on strike. We can't agree about a COVID policy. Like it's been uh, this program. We do request for no metaphors like, man, I don't have children. It would be real tough to look at this like, wow. Well, the good of this is it seems like it has been very. And in fact, the evidence is they've had daily reports now I'd say for about a good year or so saying wow this has taken a major toll on the mental health of black children children in general black children specifically uh, and they, I just I guess I'd put it this way everybody is very frustrated black children are definitely frustrated I guess the only other comment I would get in, that's kind of cliche as well. I, I don't I'm not really sure why that is where people get very frustrated with black people and it'll be black people in general. Like it won't be like a specific number of black people. Uh, you have a lot of black people. White people don't even allow them to vote. And I mean, it's different groups for different reasons. Like they have black people they don't allow to vote because you have a felony. That black people, they don't allow to vote because you haven't paid restitution. That black people, they haven't allowed, they do not allow to vote because they say you're not old enough. That black people that they don't allow to vote because, well, you didn't register. And I mean, it just goes on and on. So you have a huge chunk of black people who white people, they don't even allow you to go to the ballot box. So it can't be that we're upset with them or frustrated about them. So we move them to the side, even though that doesn't happen. So we at least skirt them to the side it also seems that there's a large chunk of black people where they routinely their vote doesn't even get counted they trash it late come up with whatever excuse they also should get excused right i went stood in line went through all that or got my ballot to do it by mail early and yeah so we at least should move them to the side so if we're really going to be frustrated about black people who voted yay nay for whomever like man in a system of racism white supremacy like 
even if they stayed home and didn't vote at all, what would be different? Like, I don't, that just seems very popular, very easy and doesn't solve any problems to be upset with black people for participating in it. We even, we had a black female. In fact, I can give two. How common this is, how popular this is. We had Paul Ifaomi Grant as a guest on the program in 2016, end of the year. He wrote a report that summer saying that black people deserve President Trump. I said, WTH, again, this is a victim of racism. You don't even live on this side of the world. What do you mean? <laughs> we victims of racism deserve what does that even mean? VGQ for sure. Victims guaranteed qualified. But I mean, dang, do you all deserve Boris Johnson as president? Like, at least give me some logic about why this is. Then this is 2020. So the same election that you're frustrated about. Black female also other side of the world. She said black people who vote for Kamala Harris deserve a spot in hell. I said, oh, my gosh, what in the world? Again, you don't even live on this side of the world. <laughs> like, how is that like eternal damnation and brim? That's like biblical, like Old Testament biblical justice. <laughs> like, why is that for voting? Really? Well, I don't mean it like in uh, to that degree. I, I'm, I, guess, I guess I'm just saying I'm just a little bit perturbed because. Uh, since it's been a year, I mean, we've had multiple pol police uh, killings and stuff like that. And I'm just looking around in my family uh, directly um, and, you know, all the blaming of Trump, uh, complaining about uh, everything about Trump, how racist he is and this, that and the other. And I'm just looking around and I don't hear a peep from any of these uh, same family members, same friends or whoever, um, just just the people who were uh, kowtowing, you know, doing all this voting. And, I, and I'm just like, I'm just like puzzled as to why um, we think that we're going to get a different uh, result when we're doing the exact same thing. That's all. For sure. We did our three hours. Uh, I just my my quick thought trying to follow logic. And again, I can understand folks being frustrated, although I will say we have been here for 13 years, even though she has not called in for a while. I do try to pick out patterns. Uh, Princess here in Florida regularly is frustrated with other victims of racism, even name calling other victims of racism. I just try to pick out that pattern as one, two. Uh, I think the same way that white people can condition Dave Chappelle and many other victims, including cows, listeners to smoke menthol cigarettes, they can condition us to say Trump is the reason or the center of all problems in the known universe and now he's gone and oh well hey President Biden he's got Kamala Harris or whatever and again Mr. Fuller has on the first page of the book for a reason if you don't understand racism white supremacy 
what it is and how it works. I said at the very beginning of the program today, I referenced Dave Chappelle. Hey, black people are confused about racism. You adjust your expectations accordingly. I expect black people to say all kinds of things that don't make sense because we are confused. Uh, And that helps me to not be frustrated. Although for some of us, that isn't the case. We continue. And I would say that is part of it. Hey, I mentioned what's black culture, menthol cigarettes, Sanford and son name calling other black people. Some of the behavior patterns and even where we focus our anger is also conditioned, just like our taste for menthol cigarettes by the usual suspects. Patience. I've greatly improved, though. We didn't hear Muppet today, so maybe I'll take your word for it. No Muppets today. We'll see. Mm-mm. Hope everyone is uh, doing healthy in the great state of Virginia. Uh, with that, we will wrap up. Uh, just check Facebook and what have you to see when we will have our next broadcast. New month uh, for May. Uh, maybe even more on the melanin and nicotine because that is important. And Gusty has known many, many, many. Even saw some today. I didn't even see a whole lot of black people today, but I saw black cigarette smokers. Woo. Uh, check for updates, future broadcasts. Much obliged for everyone participating. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, sobriety. <laughs> Say it as many times as possible. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy no cigarettes she said no smoking no liquor sobriety white people stress us on purpose and then hand us poisons tell us oh this will make you feel better meditate go to the beach meditate some yoga a hike find something constructive that will not poison and cause problems. You're taking this. I'm taking this because I'm stressed. Now I got lung cancer. You want to talk about stress? Throat cancer. You want to talk about stress? In addition to being sober, no smoking, vaping, e-cigs, etc. Uh, if you're out and about, no confrontations with strangers. You should be thinking. If this is a white person or a non-white person, male or female, they could be armed. They may have an entire entourage. If you did not leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. You can call enforcement officers as you are vacating. If you're in a vehicle, you are sober, buckled up, not on your mobile phone. We need all of our attention. Be alert about what's happening around us. And we're trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves help us demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time 
no name calling, no gossiping, no throwaway black children. Worth saying again, no smoking, vaping, liquor, sobriety would be best. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.